Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson episode, I think 161. I don't even remember anymore. I stopped t- I stopped saying episode numbers but uh, a while ago, but it's still my instinct to jump in and do that. So uh, before I welcome in this week's co-host, I wanted to briefly talk about something <laughs> that, is, uh, that is interesting. It is not often that I have an opinion on a movie that is... Uh, extremely in the minority. Um, you know, it's, it, it is, it's not at all uncommon that, uh, you know, that a movie will be a big box office hit, uh, like a Transformers film. And I either haven't seen it or I just don't like it. That's not a rare thing. And those are movies that tend to not do super well critically anyway. Um, but I do find myself very much in the minority on Captain America civil war. Um, you can uh, read my review at the More Than One Lesson website. Uh, I was also recently on an episode of Out Now with Aaron and Abe in which we talked about uh, Captain America Civil War, and I was able to uh, go into a lot more detail about my issues with the film. But, uh, but yeah, so it's, it is, like I said, it is rare, especially with a movie that I, that I so badly wanted to like, but it is rare for me to dislike a movie uh, it's not that I necessarily dislike it, but that I, that I don't love it. There are people that say it's the best Marvel m- film out there, and I could not disagree more. That's crazy to me. So feel free to go to morethanonelesson.com, uh, give a read to my article, and, uh, and weigh in, because at this point, uh, you at home, you've probably seen Civil War. Most people have. And, uh, and I would love to get your opinions uh, on my opinion. Uh, and I will say that if you happen to agree with my opinion, feel free to weigh in too. That would be great. That would really hit the spot. Um, but anyway, um, okay. So that was it. It's, it's an odd experience, uh, but one I wanted to let you guys in on. And now another thing that I'll let you guys in on is my co-host, Robert Hornack. Robert. Hi, Tyler. How you doing? I'm doing well. You sound a little wounded. Do you feel wounded? Uh, tired. Okay. I mean, I'm physically tired because I stayed up late last night, but... Uh, shocked, maybe. Maybe not wounded. Mm, shocked is too extreme. In shock is also maybe a little bit Disappointed in all of your friends and family? That's not far off. <laughs> no, it's, it's, well. it's not that. It's more just that, like, you know, people who by and large are... Am I all that's left... You is that might, why I'm on this episode? Have you seen the movie? I haven't seen the movie, and there I haven't read your uh, review of it, okay. so I have no opinion. Maybe that's why I'm here. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I'm it. But, uh, but yeah, it's... No, I don't feel wounded. I don't feel disappointed or betrayed. It's more just like, hey, guys, it's a different opinion. I'm not, I don't look down on you for liking the movie. I look down on the choices the filmmakers made. I'm just enjoying I'm the irony of the title. Civil War, of course. Exactly. Just, you know, brother against brother. Yeah, or... Everyone against Tyler, something like that. Something like that. It's apparently. not everyone. There are a few other people that I, and that, that's the thing. The people that I find myself aligned with on this, because there are a few, it's like, oh, I don't usually agree with these people. Hmm. What am I doing wrong? Well, like fanboys or no, no, no. It's <laughs> uh, people who who tend to, you know, friends and and other writers mm-hmm. uh, who tend to have a a not contrarian but a, a different opinion than most people mm-hmm. on most things including me. Uh, and I found, uh, on this, I'm, I'm aligned with them. And I was like, Oh no, I never wanted to be with you. Am I changing? <laughs> okay. uh, I've got new friends and I don't like them. Cause I also didn't like Ant-Man hmm. that much. I haven't seen that either. Uh, civil war is much better than Ant-Man, but, hmm. uh, 
Although Ant-Man is used very well in Civil War. He's one of the highlights of hmm. Civil War. Uh, I think he works best as a supporting character, personally. I don't understand the whole superhero world. Well... I've seen very few of them. Which ones have you seen? Uh, you saw the original Superman, and you saw X-Men First Class. I, I did see those two. I did. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I've actually seen more than I'm, I'm letting on. I've seen quite a number of them. Okay. But I don't, I don't anticipate them. I don't put them on a pedestal. I don't like... I'm not like ravenously waiting yeah. for it to you know premiere and all this stuff so it's just not doesn't it's not the kind of entertainment i enjoy yeah i by and large i do like superhero movies i mean I, it's the same with everything i like well-made superhero movies mm -hmm. you know um i did like the first uh not age of ultron but the one before that the, the avengers Aven the avengers the avengers yeah. right so simply named yeah that's I like that's that the best much. one of the bunch and i feel like it's going to be hard to beat yeah um but I still haven't seen Age of Ultron. I, have, I just simply haven't seen it. I'll lend it to you. What? It'll be so much fun. Will it work on my 46-inch screen? I think so. I think you'll be fine. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's good stuff. It's not as good as the first one, and narratively, there's, it's kind of a mess here and there. But, uh, hmm. but, you know, from a character standpoint, it does good stuff. That's the thing about Civil War. The characters are doing well. The performances are great. My big thing is that the filmmakers themselves don't seem to understand how important these events are, and they treat it like it's just any other movie. It's like, no, no, no. Hmm. The heroes are turning on each other. That's a big deal. Uh, that would um, be a big deal. So maybe you can reflect that stylistically? No? Okay. It seems like that's happening in your own life. What do you mean? The heroes are turning on each other. Well, who are the heroes? Me and... You and all uh, of your friends and family. That's true. Let's unpack this. But it's more that they're revealing themselves to be villains. But anyway, <laughs> we'll move on. Um, they're kind of like Loki, you know, they're I creating not, mischief in my I'm life. here to help you dig your hole is what's happening. Whatever. It's fine. You know, I led, I decided to lead with this, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's an odd, like I said, it's an odd experience, mm -hmm. uh, being in this position. Um, especially just, but this is, this is, it's a, it's a fun critic experience where everyone loves a thing and you're just like, including other critics and you're just like, Hey guys, sorry, I can't, can't do it. Can't do it. I feel the same about Green Room. I think Green Room is per, is is mm. fine. It's very effective in some instances, but there are people that say it is a literally perfect movie, and wow. I do not see that at all. Mm. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I'm changing. I barely know what that is. Green Room. Did it's you like see Blue Ruin? I, I did. Same uh, on your recommendation, as, actually. Oh, did you like it? I did like it. Uh, same yeah. director as that. Okay. Um, and a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people. What's this deal with colors? I don't know. I made a joke uh, that his next film will be Orange Julius, um, <laughs> but that's a dumb joke, and I feel bad for I it. I liked it. Thank you. Well, exactly. All the more reason I should feel bad. That's why I'm here. Um, but yeah, that's one where it's just, people say that's a perfect movie, and people say, oh, it's amazing. It's like, oh, it's a step up from Blue Ruin. No, far, come on. Now you're making me angry. Right. That like was like this, your number three or four movie that year, wasn't it? Yeah. And it's just, and I don't understand how anybody can watch. And this is, and when I say stuff like this, this is where I get in trouble because now I'm getting incredulous about other people's opinions, but I do not understand how, how anyone can watch Blue Ruin and then Green Room and come away thinking Green Room is the better film. Hmm. It's uh, astounding to me. Okay. Now that I've angered all Everyone, of my listeners. Um, there's no one left out there. Because there's, you know, nobody's a bigger fan of Green Room than the Christian audience. Uh, I'm joking, of course. But, um... So today we're going to talk about a film that seems, I always wind up landing on these films with you, movies that, uh, that seem too big, uh, hmm. for me to thematically or artistically too big for me to really dig into. I've, you know, 
when we talked about the master, that seemed like an overwhelming thing yeah, it was. that we only scratched the surface of. And that's definitely how I feel about this film, a movie that, uh, that I didn't necessarily love when I first saw it, but it de- it definitely has a resonance uh, in a lot of ways. And that is uh, Alejandro Iñárritu's The Revenant. Big movie. movie. Big movie. The movie that won, won three big Oscars last year. It won Best Actor for Leonardo DiCaprio, mm-hmm. Best Director, and Best Cinematography for Emmanuel Lebeski, winning his third cinematography Oscar in a row. Wow. What were yeah. the other two? So I guess it would be Birdman. Birdman and then Gravity. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. And then Inuritu went one director two years in a row. This guy likes long takes. I guess so. And he's good at him. You yeah. know, you got to stick with what works. Yep. Um, old uh, Janusz Kaminski, Columbia College Chicago uh, graduate, um, he, uh, he likes those washed out skies. You know, the, every cinematographer, uh, Roger Deakins loves uh, everything because he's awesome. Mm-hmm. Roger Deakins is amazing. Unawarded. Unawarded. That's right. Emmanuel Lebeski wins three. Just what give one heck? of them. Just give one of them to Roger Deakins. Like at this point, he's kind of a prime candidate for. Just give him a lifetime achievement Oscar, and we'll be we'll be fine. Who, Deakins. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because he's getting up there in years, and I, I'm sure he has more nominations to his name. But like, you know, everybody this year was talking about um, DeCap, and I think Deakins was nominated this past year for uh, Sicario. Now that I go. think about it. Um, but everyone's like, DiCaprio, this is his year. This is his year. What about like, Deacons? What about poor Roger Deacons? Sitting you know, over there shivering. Um, who shot, I think, what is to me maybe one of the like top five most beautiful movies I've ever seen, which is uh, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. I've heard you mention this, and uh, yeah. that's another movie I have not seen, but mm-hmm. I look forward to it. Good stuff. That's one that I don't own on Blu-ray, and I think that's an oversight on my part, because I think something that beautiful should be seen as, as clear as possible. That's the real reason your friends are turning against you. What? You don't have the coward I don't have enough. on Blu- Blu-ray. That's right, yeah. I'm considering getting up and walking out right now. I'll just keep going. It's fine. I did this show alone for a long time. You I did, can, I can you? do it again. Um, but no, actually, I don't want to because I, I need you to, okay. to help me get my hands around The Revenant. Let's do it. Um, now, as far as expectations, this film had a really fascinating and well-put-together trailer. And... Uh, a lot of people were really excited about it. And then the minute it came out, a lot of people just started saying the word overrated. They started mm-hmm. saying that like, and I said this last year uh, with Birdman that, uh, or I guess two years ago with Birdman, that there were a lot of critics who talked about how Inuritu makes movies that are kind of dumb, kind of simple, and that he he disguises them with like this really flashy, difficult photography and shooting style and that kind of thing. And while I'm not a huge fan of, you know, I don't love Babel. I didn't love The Revenant. Um, I liked Birdman quite a bit. But like, I'm just astonished that there are people that will look at his movies and their first instinct is to be reductive. Hmm. You know, uh, I've heard people say like, oh, he just makes these movies, you know, it's like nobody made it, nobody forced him to make these movies this way. He's just making it harder for himself. It's like, is that a bad instinct for a director to challenge himself? Maybe e- like either uh, thematically or artistically, because this movie is astonishing to me in many ways, visually, certainly. I, I think would it is it possible that they're saying not, not necessarily that the stories are dumb that the movies are dumb, but that he's he does. I mean, if you look at his list of movies, or at least the ones that we all talk about, mm. uh, you know, Twenty One Grams and 
Amoros Paris, or Amor, how do you say that? Amoros Paros. Amoros Paros. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of gimmicky. You know, they're, they're built on a gimmick. The marketing for them certainly would be gimmicky. Sure. Like, um, this movie, you know, no, no, it all, all external, all, all actual real light, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, Birdman, you know, one seemingly continuous shot. Yeah. And Amoros Paros is, you know, the collision of three lives, three, you know, lives that have nothing to do with each other and they mm-hmm. just kind of collide. Um, and it's, e- I think it's easy to take a movie like that where there's a central gimmick to it mm-hmm. and be reductive with it because, sure. because it's easy to kind of toss around. It was like a toy. It's like, oh, it's just, it's just one of those. Yeah. Um, but I think the simple, sometimes the simplest stories have the most, have the richest thematic content. Yeah. Depending on how seriously the filmmaker takes it. And in all of these cases, the, the filmmaker in is t- taking the, the story itself seriously by uh, lavishing this kind of detail or gimmickry, yeah. if that's a word, um, onto it. It's like he wants you to see it. He wants you to see what he has to say. And this is how he's doing it by making it one long continuous shot. That might get you in the theater because people are talking about that. Or, you know, it's just like it's all regular sunlight. You know, it's like there's mm-hmm. no... Uh, no big lights you know, were used for this movie. It's all natural light. That's the phrase I'm looking for, natural light. Um, that might get you in the theater because that's what people are talking about. And then you go and you see that thing, that yeah. gimmick. But you're also treated as something that's like, it, it's elevated that simple kind of story, yeah. like the basic revenge story, into something that's kind of worth watching in a different kind of way. It elevates the simplicity of that kind of story into something bigger. Yeah, I don't know, know that it's like artificially inflated uh, as... Some people seem to be saying. Well, and that's, you know, that's the thing is that uh, this actually goes back to one of my problems with Civil War is that, you know, we're dealing with big emotional and thematic things, but the filmmakers don't seem to know it. So they shoot it like any other Marvel movie. Mm. Uh, Inuritu seems to understand what is going on in the inner lives of his characters. You know, with Birdman, you have a character that is just in some kind of free fall emotionally. You know, he's and he just feels he just feels stressed. He feels put upon, you know, uh, in the world of filmmaking, uh, a cut can depending on how you use it, a cut can be uh, can be used to heighten stress or a cut can be a relief. It's oh, thank God we've we've cut from the thing I don't like to somebody else, even if it's just in the same scene. Well, there's no obviously there are hidden cuts in Birdman, but for all intents and purposes, there are no cuts. And so we're just. This guy can't get a feels like he can't get a break, and thus we don't get a break, you know. And then with the Revenant, you know, what's going on inside of the the main character Hugh Glass is that, uh, you know, it, there's something operatic going on inside him. I mean, he's just roiling with like this, with grief and revenge, but also a uh, a deep desire for survival, and often feeling in that. Uh, that like the world is against him, which it kind of is, which is something we'll get to in a moment. Uh, like those are big emotions. Those are big feelings. And if you feel like it's like, I need to survive, but everything's against me. Well, you really need to focus on then the filmmaker, I think really needs to, needs to focus on, well, what does everything mean? It means snowstorms. It means a bear attack. It means, you know, uh, these Indians, it means all of these things all bearing down on this guy. The film in many ways is very oppressive. Um, and you know, one of the things that we can talk about, uh, that isn't necessarily a theme we'll be exploring, uh, in the spiritual way, but like 
the natural world being not necessarily our enemy, but being a lot more complicated and a lot more oppressive than we thought. Um, I made a joke when the movie first came out that it's almost like, it's like if uh, Werner Herzog and Terrence Malick mm-hmm. uh, made a movie together. Sure. You know, it's like, we're going to make the nature as beautiful and as dangerous as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, there's just, there's so much going on with this film and it bothers me that people are as closed off to it as they are. Um, I was talking with a guy who um, we just had coffee once. He's a, he's a podcaster. He's a political commentator. And we were talking about the revenant and he was talking about how much he loved it and that he saw God in every frame of that movie. Now that's more than I say, but like he just saw the beauty of that film and just the, the, uh, just and by using natural light there's a natural beauty to the film you know and and it's shot in a way that emphasizes that but so he was saying that he looked at that and just saw you know uh the kind of the war that i'm talking about the war between like god's creation and beauty but then the fallenness of the world and that this thing can actually be used to 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 hurt you Mm. um so that's something he and I were talking about, and then he actually posted uh, an article on one of the political websites that he writes for, and talked and said what we're talking, what I'm talking about here, and the sheer number of people that were unwilling to engage with what he thought, and and literally said, "Well, I didn't see that. This movie's dumb. Like, I don't, I don't see how you see, look at this movie and see God anywhere. This movie's, I believe that somebody used the word gimmicky. Uh, it's like this movie's gimmicky. It's it's dumb. Like, they're just so willing. I don't know what it is. There's just a something about this film, and maybe just about the way Inuritu makes movies. Anyway, um, maybe because he's 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 making big movies and he's taking risks. And anytime you take a risk, somebody's either not going to appreciate uh, appreciate it fully right. or they're going to, they're going to say like, "Oh, he's just taking risks for their own sake." I don't have, I don't have any use for that, and um, and it just seems unfair, you know. This film was not, it was really nowhere near my top ten last year, but it's not a film that one can shake off easily. It is no. a, it is in many ways a very engrossing film and one that deserves to be talked about. Sure, you feel tired after it. Sure. As much as, not as much as a character, but you're, you're certainly supposed to feel tired after it. Yeah. Um, no, I don't understand why why people would be against it just sort of bald face like that. I don't, I mean, without an argument behind it, with, if it's just like an, an internet comment, like, oh, it's stupid or it's gimmicky, you need to kind of follow up by that because yes, it's gimmicky. Yeah. Um, in the way that we've described gimmicky. Um but there's stuff going on, and there's yeah. it's mythology. It's like it's like uh, the 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 story of America, if you want to call it that. There's stuff to talk about with this movie, and the the story is simple enough that that it essentially makes it easy to talk about those things yeah. as we may do today. I love when a simple story is engaged in a complex way, and I yeah. think that's very much what Inuritu is doing here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so. It's a film that's very, you know, and I have no doubt that people listening to this will will have had a big response to it. I can't think of a lot of people. There might be people that are, I think, a little bit reductive and dismissive, but I can't think of anybody that that I know that watched this movie and didn't have a distinct 
big reaction, positively or negatively. Um, it's just not a film. I, and maybe that's what Inuritu is trying for. It's just like, I don't want people coming away from my movies having, you know, forgotten them. Sure. You know, I want people to remember the characters they engaged with and the world they were a part of, at least for a little while. Um, I think it's safe know. to say that, you know, 20, 30 years from now, this movie will be remember, remembered for the bear scene. Sure. Um, which is kind of a gimmick, but I, I kind of appreciate the fact that that's there at all. I yeah. mean, it's, you know, it's ba- the story is based on what some actual it's tale loosely based on a true story yeah wherein a guy was attacked by a bear and then traveled however many hundreds of miles to seek his revenge yeah to meet out his revenge and yeah so you kind of have to have the bear scene to make even that yeah. skeleton of a story work um but for me i i came to the bear scene and i knew it was going to happen because that's what everyone talks about so, oh the bear yeah. scene have you seen the bear scene and I was nervous for it before it happened because I was like, oh, I don't want to watch this giant CGI thing happen. Yeah. Especially in this, in the context of a movie where everything is like purported to be like natural yeah. light and very little yeah. CGI work or post-production work in that way done. Yeah. If you see any seams at all in this movie, it's all, it, it all falls apart. Because of the marketing. Yeah. Or because of the perception of it being a pure movie based on yeah. solely the lighting. Um, but I was watching it. I told you beforehand, I saw this on a friend of mine. Oh, it's a mutual friend of ours named Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a projector that's uh, tied to his, his player. And, uh, and he has this giant, beautiful blank wall, white wall. And so he watched the giant in his living room. The lights are out and stuff. And it was just a magnificent way to, to watch it. Very comfortable, but just beautiful on his wall. And, uh, but I, ca- I came to that moment, and I was nervous for it because I have, as we've talked about on this show many times just kind of an aversion to CGI in general. And maybe that's why I don't like superhero movies because they rely so much on that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've kind of learned over the years to accept movies like that as kind of glorified cartoons. And I can enjoy them more because it's like, well, I don't need to expect it to be real looking. Yeah. But in a movie like this, um, with the ethos that it has, if that's the right use of that word, um, wherein you, you're supposed to sort of believe what you're seeing on the screen yeah. for a central scene to be about a bear uh, attacking a guy and it pretty much has to be rendered in CGI. How can that possibly be good? So that's that was sort of my mindset going in. And indeed, it does look like a CGI bear. There's no way it's not going to look like a CGI bear on, mm-hmm. on some level. Um, it's like, in general, animals, whether they're fictitious animals or re- animals that are real that are rendered in CGI, they make them move too much or they make the, the, the fur move too much or the, the, the creatures tend to overact basically. Hmm. And the flesh on these creatures tend to overact too much. And I think there's some of that in this as well. It's like, there's, there's a believability to it to a certain point, but then it still looks like a CGI creature. Hmm. Um, but this was so successfully done, even by my standards. Yeah, I was, I was really drawn into the scene, and I, I, I was very impressed by it. Not that Inurito has to impress me, Robert Hornick sitting on a couch in my friend's room, uh, bedroom, bedroom, living room. Um, but he did impress me, and it was just really, really well done. And kudos to that. I don't know what else to say about it except that it was very good. Well, that scene is quite harrowing. Yeah, um, I watched it again today just to kind of remind me of... I didn't need reminding, but I did. I yeah. reminded myself of how awesome it is on my 46-inch screen. It's very, very good. Yeah, one of the reasons that I feel like I would never return to this movie is because it's like, well, I saw it on the big screen, and I 
feel like why would I why would I tarnish that memory by watching it on a small screen in my living room? Yeah, you know? it's still good. Um, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Uh, but no, that scene is just it's done so. Uh, one of the, there are certain choices that uh, that Inuritu makes and one of them is like in that scene there's no music hmm. you know there's no blaring horns showing you like uh, indicating like this is a big deal and he's in danger it's just very matter of fact mm-hmm. um and in in removing music uh it forces you to hear every sound uh the sound of flesh tearing and bones crunching mm-hmm. and roars and twigs snapping and stuff like that um, I think the sound design for the film is amazing, but, uh, yeah. And that, that scene is really, it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the, the pivotal scene of the film, but it is a pivotal scene of the film. Like this, if we're going to believe how difficult it is for this guy to survive at all, we need to, him to be beaten up so much that it's like, <clears throat> and we also need to believe that everyone else would not everyone else, but that the Tom Hardy character would think this man is better off dead. And he is. He is unsalvageable. Come on, people. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that that scene is, uh, I'm not sure if I'd say it's flawless. And yeah, I, I see the, the CGI from time to time, but for the most part, it's done pretty well. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with how it's cut together and when they use, because I'm sure that, I don't think all of it is CGI. Like, I'm sure like when they're using, uh, when they're cutting to like close-ups of like a paw or something like that, yeah. like they can use a prop sure. paw or something like that, or maybe not. Maybe it's all when the, when the paw is like on his head, yeah, and it's a close-up of his head with paw yeah. on it. It looks like a, a model of some kind, yeah, as it should. You yeah. know, it's it's literally on his head, and it's a close-up, and it's yeah. you know, uh, yeah, and and just and so much of the film is just done in that way where, you know, in the in the big scene where it's just all where it's all one shot and where there's the initial Indian attack and everybody's yes. running, I have no doubt that there's some CGI arrows flying by right. and and that sort of thing, but. But it just all feels, and I'm not a fan of the long take, because for the most part, I feel like it's something that calls attention to itself. Mm-hmm. And I often think that they're not totally necessary, except to show, look at this thing we did. Um, and I can admire what they've done, but it actually winds up taking me, for the most part, taking me out of the scene. That scene is different, like because, I don't know, it just by having it all be one fluid thing uh, and just weaving in and out of this situation, I feel like it actually enhances the chaos more so than quick cutting uh, ever could. Um, it actually forces you to sort of be somebody in that position. Like you're just one more fur trapper running away from right. everybody. Um, and I, that scene works really well for me and just I agree. so many, so many of the, the instincts uh, of how to make this movie, um, I think are, I'll say they're spot on, but they're not necessarily, uh, instinctive. I've seen movies like this before that I've liked, but they're done in a way that is much safer and much more conventional. Uh, this film, the way Inuritu chooses to make it, it feels like the most natural thing in the world. Like, well, obviously how yeah. else could you make this film? Well, there's plenty of ways to make this film, but they wouldn't be quite as memorable. And, uh, and yeah, it's. I feel like I'm talking myself into into loving this film, and I don't think that's the case because there are some narrative things that that uh, that I don't really embrace. But it's a film that I will respect up and down, you know, all day long. Yeah, 
So um, something that uh, I wrote down, uh, Village Voices, Alan Schurstuhl, I don't know how to say his name, said, to, kind of to what you just said a minute ago, um, you've sat through variations on every scene in The Revenant before, but you probably never believed them. Inurito puts you there. Yeah. And that's, I feel like that's exactly right. Yeah. You, you do feel like um, like an arrow could get you yeah. <laughs> as you're sitting there and it's giant in front of you. This is really powerfully done. I'm like you. It's like the a long take is gimmicky in itself in uh, in the same way that overcutting Mm-hmm. is gimmicky and you know we talk about like what what are the best you know our favorite editing scenes yeah. and we almost always go to like the the shower scene in Psycho or or something else that, that feels like oh that's editing it's because it's like yeah a lot of very well done chopping um, but the best editing is is invisible and the best long takes are invisible as well and Inurito does the long take invisibly yeah. but he's learned to do it invisibly it's not so much in in um, in Birdman because I think he wants you to notice that it's a long take yeah um, but in this case it, I think it serves the, these long takes serve the purpose of making you feel like you're you're in the snow with Leo yeah and and you're suffering alongside Leo because you've been in this shot for so long you're just like ah. Oh, What's going to save us from this moment? I feel like the long takes that I respond to are the ones that I feel first. I think there are a lot of long takes that you think, that that you realize it intellectually before you feel anything. Hmm. Whereas, you know, the long take in this and and the ones that I I tend to respond to, well, I think one of the reasons that the long take in Touch of Evil, which I just recently watched, Mm -hmm. um, I think the long take, the reason that long take works is because it starts with a bomb being uh, a bomb being put in the car. So, once again, I talk about like the idea of a cut being a sense of relief. We're cutting yes. to something else, but by folk by just following this car and not cutting, it just like builds the suspense. Like you feel every moment of it. Yeah. Um, and with this, you know, you feel like you said, you feel like you're there. You feel like at any moment you yourself could get hurt. You feel like you're in danger. Whereas, you know, when I look at the uh, the long take in um, a movie like Atonement, which is a beautiful shot and really I respect it. It's it's really well done and it must have been very difficult. And it shows like all of these uh, soldiers on a beach and that kind of thing. And it pulls back. Um but that's but I'm not feeling anything in that moment. Like there's nothing. I'm about to make a sweeping statement that I'm not sure if I totally agree with, which is I feel like a long take not merely can put you in the mindset of the main character better than than a scene with a bunch of cuts. Not only do I think it can do that, I think it should do that. Um, yeah. Otherwise, think, it's just it's just for its own sake. Yes. It doesn't. It doesn't affect anything narratively, right? Or emotionally for you as the viewer. Like another, and obviously we're talking about long takes that are kind of fluid, that are moving. You know, there's mm-hmm. a long take in Twelve Years a Slave that is absolutely brutal, yep. but it's just a static shot. I know exactly what you're talking. But about. But that's one where, I mean, that puts you in the position of the character. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I mean, it's a it's a lynching scene. Yeah, and it, and you just are left to sit there. It's, it's one of those. It, it's emotional on a couple of levels because I remember sitting here on my couch watching that and going. Um, uh, what, what, what do I do? Is this the rest of the movie? Yeah. Um, there's a moment, there's a, you, you want it to end, but there's part of you that feels like you're being implicated to, yeah. there's a, there's an emotional attachment you've developed for the character. And so you're yeah. sorry for him to yeah. put it as 
you know, s- flatly as you can, you feel sorry for this guy. Yeah. Because he's done nothing to deserve what's happening to to him in front of you. Right. Um, but you're not doing anything about it either. I mean, if you, yeah. it's almost like, you know, your version of helping him would be to fast forward. Please get, get us out yeah. of this moment. Um, but you just continue to sit there and watch him hang. Yeah. And you do nothing. And it feels, it's this weird sense of like, like feeling sorry for him and, and also kind of, uh, there's a guilty feeling like this, this was happening very recently still, and it still does happen. I'm certain somewhere. Sure. Um, and what are we doing to stop it? We're yeah. sitting on our couch. That's <laughs> that's kind of how you feel after the shot is over. It's not a relief feeling insofar as you're not relieved that that moment is over because you kind of feel like that that moment is his moment for the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, I was I was really stunned by that moment. I I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't really. Can you say this about a, a movie about slavery? But I wasn't really liking the movie that much. Yeah. And I, I respected the movie after that moment for making me feel that way. I mean, you don't want to feel implicated in slavery or yeah. in prejudice, but I appreciated the movie, and I, I love the fact that McQueen went there. Um, am I just being a glutton for guilt? I don't really know. I didn't analyze it too deeply, but I was like really impressed by the fact that he did that at all. Well, I think it shows a, a commitment on the part of, and we'll get back to The Revenant in a moment, but I think it shows a commitment on the part of the filmmaker to do what what is what feels right in that moment. You know, I can. It's like, well, I could just give an impression of the hanging and then cut to something else. It's like, no, like this character is literally hanging there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing he can do about it except just squish the mud between his toes. Once again, some good sound design there. Um, There's some people in the background, though, that are kind of watching it like, yeah. like you are yeah, from your couch. It's like you're on the other side of him from them. Yeah. And like if you were to cut to their perspective, they'd see me. They'd see, see, yeah. You'd see me in the background. So, yeah, yeah it's it's that powerful a moment in yeah. the movie. And uh, I, I thought during that moment, I was like, what, what, what was happening in the theater during the shot. Oh, I can tell you what happened in the uh, critic screening okay. during that shot. Because uh, that shot goes on for maybe a minute. Which is a long time. Which is a long time. Film. It doesn't seem like a long time. But if you're watching somebody hang and it's a static shot yeah. and you're seeing them try not to choke to death by just standing on their tiptoes, squishing the mud between their feet, like a minute is an eternity. Yeah, And about every... So we're watching, we're watching, and then there comes a moment when somebody went like, ugh. And then someone else did it about five seconds later, and then I did it about five seconds later, and then someone did it after me. And you could tell it's like, this is when the that particular critic has reached their point when it's like, this should have cut by now. Yeah. Like, I, I've reached my breaking point. Was that a frustration with the movie, those Uggs? No, no, no. Or was it more like... No, it was... I can't take this. Got it. Like, yeah. and it, and that's an emotional thing, you mm-hmm. know? And I think what you're talking about, like to go back to what I was uh, mentioning, it's an emotion mixed with an intellectual reaction. It's like, I'm feeling, I'm certainly feeling for him, but I'm also just feeling like I shouldn't be seeing this. Why yeah. am I seeing this? Oh, because uh, I'm like these other people. Right. I'm not, I'm never completely from his point of view. Now, am I, mm-hmm. you know, I might be sympathetic, but I'm also the film's also forcing me not to do anything about it, and that in itself is like one of the worst feelings you can have. Absolutely. Um, but to bring we'll bring this back to to the Revenant. Um, you know, 
we're talking about long takes being a function of, you know, uh, and just, and so much of the way the film is made just being a function of Inuritu's instinct of how this film should be made, both trying to display the inner life of his main character, but also trying to depict the world that his character lives in. And I get a really, I definitely get a strong idea of what this world is. It's, it's just so desolate and so dangerous. And there's just dangers on all sides. And what I like is that the film seems like it should be episodic, but it isn't in my opinion. For example, even within the bear attack, it attacks three times. Mm -hmm. You feel like after that first one, like, okay, well, glad that's over. Oh, wait, it's actually not over. Oh, okay, second second attack. Whew, that's tough. Man, this guy's going to have a hard time surviving. Oh, here it comes again. <laughs> right. You know, and it's the same with, you know, the Indians that attack at the beginning. You initially feel like, all right, that's over. Uh, that was horrible. We lost a lot of people. We have to retreat now, but that's over. No, they keep coming back and the film keeps cutting to them. Like they're also, the dangers of this world are ever present. It's not, okay, I went through this terrible thing. Time to move on to the next terrible thing. No, they're all happening all at once. Yeah. You know, like it wouldn't, it would be almost comical if, if he did this, but like it would seem appropriate if at the end of the film, DiCaprio was attacked by a separate, by a different <laughs> bear. Because he's just out in the wilderness, you know, yeah. and uh, there are other bears. There are other bears out there. Bookend with bears. Uh, well, that sounds like a delightful romp, but <laughs> um, but yeah, and I feel like uh, just the the danger of this world is so palpable. And that's just the that's just the things that will actively attack you. There's also the freezing cold, right. you know, Uh and cliffs that you could accidentally fall off of sure. or something like that. And it's just, you know, about that, uh, that initial native American attack. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was just sitting here thinking about it and my memory of it, correct me if I'm wrong is, you know, I, I'm comparing in my mind to like other bear, bear attacks, um, native American attack or Indian attacks uh, in other movies. And there's always, it, By always the way, I usually say native American, but because of the film we're talking about and the way the characters would refer to them, I'm choosing to say Indian. It's also easier. It's also faster. As yes. terrible as that sounds. Um, when they attack or in a scene like this, we have seen these, this scene a million times mm -hmm. in the movie, cowboy movies, yeah. cowboys and Indians. It always feels like, okay, there's this, it's like football. It's like this side and this side and they're clashing. Yeah. Or, um, but in, in this movie, it feels like the first time that I've seen it done successfully anyway, where it feels like, like an Indian attack or, uh, uh, a fur traders attack on an Indian camp, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is. Um, it's happening kind of in, in 360 and 360 yeah. degrees. It's like arrows can come from anywhere. Basically. Yeah. It's not like your side against their side. It's more like there's this piece of land yeah. that both groups want and all of uh, every direction is covered. Yeah. And you, there's no way to escape an arrow. You can't run away from where the arrows are coming from yeah. because they're coming from every direction. And I don't remember feeling that way in a movie before where, Oh, Literally anyone on the screen right now could get it, and it could come from any direction. It just feels it feels visceral in a different way for that kind of scene than I've seen before that I can recall. The only thing I can compare it to is the opening 
scene of Saving Private. There you go. That that's a, a great example. But even there, you 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 still get the sense that the Germans are on that side, right? Of of the beachhead, or right. uh, And then the guys are coming in from the water. Yeah. And so there's a, de- a like a straight line demarcation. It's like water, beach, land, or water, yeah. beach, Germans. Um, so you kind of get that you know the, the bullets are coming from that direction generally. Yes. But here true. it's like. It's a great comparison, though. It'd be interesting to see these two scenes side by side because yeah. they're both masterfully done in different ways, um, and you feel like you're there in both instances. Um, but maybe because of just the nature of like arrows, and you think of an arrow like there's a, the first thing you see that you know that this is going to be terrible for all these guys is an arrow completely through the neck that stays there. Yeah. It's like, ooh. Um, and then that happens over and over again in various ways. Um but from different directions. And what I, my point is that it just feels different. Yeah. And it's not a classically constructed scene for a Indian, cowboys and Indians kind of thing. Well, and I was talking with a friend of mine recently about uh, how one of my favorite things that I learned about in film school is the concept of the frame. And that there really is an element in filmmaking that early filmmakers realized long before uh, other people like a Buster Keaton that, oh, something's out of sight. It's out of mind. Like people are not, they might arrive later that like, oh, wait a minute. He definitely would have seen that coming. Sure. Doesn't matter. In the moment, if it's not on the, if it's not on screen, it doesn't exist. Um, And this is a film. And then there are are films that explore that. uh, And then there are films that push that to the side. That's like, no, no, no. If it's not on the screen, it still exists. You're just not seeing it. How terrifying is so, that? Somehow your subconscious is seeing it. And yeah. I, I rail against this. I'm sitting next to my wife watching a movie and I go, oh, he would have seen that. Or they, they would have seen that coming or he would have already been standing there for that long. And I don't know why this example popped into my mind. It's such an innocuous moment in an otherwise okay movie. Um, but in Super 8, hmm. okay, there's, there's a moment when uh, the dog is missing. Okay. And, he want, and the kid wants to put an ad for his dog up on a bulletin board like you would like have you seen this dog right and it shows his hand putting it up on the on the board and then it pulls back to show that there are like hundreds of dogs missing right and it, then it cuts the reaction of the kid and he's like seeing oh my gosh there's like dog pictures everywhere yeah he would have seen that he was putting yeah. I, and I, again I don't know why that example but those kind of things drive me out of my mind it's like the character would have seen that unless it's a comedy or unless it's a Wes Anderson mo- type movie where everything that happens in the screen is what's important. It might be all that exists because everything that you need to know about the inner worlds of that character has been laid out for you inside of that very highly preciously composed frame. Um, but most movies aren't like that. Most movies don't expect you to be like that. I think there is a psychological need or a subliminal awareness that there are things going on that could happen outside here as well. Um, and this is where uh, I feel like, so J.J. Abrams made that movie, and it is very much a tribute to Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And Spielberg is very big into people looking out of the frame. Absolutely, off, he's brilliant at it. Frame. Um, but one of the things that I, there's not much I like about Super 8, but I remember liking that shot because it it's so many movies, and this is the thing I like, so many movies try to put the audience in the, in the seat of the main character in that shot, it puts the main character in the seat of the audience because he is realizing only what we, what we realize and he reacts to it the way we are reacting to it. Um, but yeah, it also, it also does seem like it's a moment that's supposed to be like, Oh my gosh, like a a moment of realization, but it is also a moment that could be funny that it's just like, Oh, this, uh, 
I think your dog's gone. Like, because, yeah. uh, and I don't think anybody's going to notice this particular flyer amongst all of these others. Yeah, it's like in, in a comedy, it would be something kind of like where a character's having a, like a sad moment and, you know, the music starts playing and then you pull back and you see that that music is being played by a guy right next to the person. Sure. You know, it's just like, it, it can be used funny, but in, in a drama, even a sci-fi drama that you're not necessarily supposed to take as completely realistic, yeah. it just takes me right out of it. And I should say that that is a minuscule complaint that I have in con- contrast to the multitudes of much larger complaints I have about that movie that we could, oh, we could spend a whole episode on what I hate about that movie. Why wow, you hate? I, I almost, I didn't want to say hate, but I, it sort of slipped out. Oh, I'm wow. sorry. Okay. I very strongly dislike Super 8. Um, you know, one thing that, I, that I'll say, given what we've been talking about with uh, Revenant versus Saving Private Ryan, not versus, but, you know, comparing and contra- uh, contrasting, um, I find myself wondering, wouldn't it be terrifying for Inuri 2 to make a Vietnam movie? Because yeah. that's a guerrilla warfare situation mm-hmm. where there is no, they're right in front of us or they're behind us. Yeah. They're Ignore literally them. everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine that level of paranoia? Like he decides he's going to remake Platoon. I don't think I want to see that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I do either. But, um, but yeah. Uh, and that's the thing. Like, I feel like I want to move on, but it feels wrong to do that. It just, this is a film I feel like I want to talk about every frame of it. I want to talk about every scene. I want to talk about every shot, every choice. That well, is what do you want made. to talk about, Tyler? I just said I want to talk about all of those. Let's this talk about Leo DiCaprio. Uh, Can I say a few words about Leo DiCaprio? Before we do that, yes. before we move into performance, uh, I wanted to talk about certain other technical things, oh, fine. Uh, including production design, mm-hmm. costume design, makeup, and that sort of thing. Um, because that also goes a long way to defining the world that we're seeing. And, you know, one thing that I find interesting is just the way the characters dress, uh, the, when we eventually do see structures, you know, like, uh, a, like a fort and that sort of thing, everything is just so wet and dirty and hastily put together from, you know, you just feel like the costumes these people wear is just whatever they happen to find probably off a dead man or something right. like that. Uh, certainly in the case of uh, Tom Hardy's character and, and there's just something to be said. So in so many ways, this film could have uh, could have gone the route of like a standard prestige picture, which is okay. We know how we're going to shoot these sweeping vistas, and it does, but it doesn't shoot them in a way that makes you marvel at them. You you can marvel at them, but you are also feeling, you know overwhelmed or oppressed or just like, Oh man, that's a long way for this guy who just got attacked by a bear to travel, you know, stuff like that. Um, and in that same way, you know, I've seen movies where the cost, like the Epic, uh, sorry, the, the, the period costumes. Yes. It's supposed to be like poor people who are just kind of dressed in rags, but you can tell like they're very lovingly designed and they feel designed. Same with, you know, the, the log cabins and stuff. Uh, whereas this, it real it feels like maybe not even reality, but it, it feels like one could say an emotional reality. Reality mm-hmm. when you see the the lives that these people are living, of course they're dressed like that. Of course they're living in structures like this. Right. The idea that so so dirty a, a place as that fort can be seen as a place of safety helps to enhance how dangerous the, the natural world is. Right. Um, and I just, I, I, and then the makeup, I think they do a really good job with the makeup, uh, with not like in, in my view, not over, uh, 
stating, you know, DiCaprio's wounds or, or stuff like that. Um, I never questioned any of that. And I, I typically look at those things because they do often seem like they just walked off the makeup trailer yeah. with whatever's on them. Yeah. Um, I, I really do believe that Inurito, am I even saying that right? Inurito. Inurito. Yeah. I think I, I named a chip Inurito <laughs> is what I said. Um, no, I think he's, he, he grabbed me right away. I believe I don't even remember what the first shots are, but there's something about the world that he, he puts you in right away that I, I believed a lot, a lot sooner, Mm -hmm. um, than I normally do. I I tend to be overly critical, um, of, of certain things, especially period movies and costumes and whatnot. I'm, I, again, I don't know why this popped in my mind, but I was thinking of uh, the Coen brothers, true grit, which has great costumes. But they are more what you're talking about with regard to like they're kind of lovingly crafted. And it's like, yeah. we're making a cowboy movie. And so let's make this look lived in. But it's still kind of classically that thing. It's like what's yeah. going to evoke. Instead of it being the world that they're in, it's more like the world they're in is a cowboy movie. Yeah. And so this is appropriate for that. Whereas <sighs> this is like, it's it's almost like a it's a world that's not exactly like popularly explored in movies. Yeah. It's like 1820s, the Northwest, you know, the unexplored yeah. Northwest or whatever, Rocky mountains or whatever it is. And so it's not like we have a preconceived, a strong preconceived notion of what that is outside of maybe social studies class from sixth grade. Um, but so it's not like maybe they didn't have to work as hard to make us believe because it's like they could put that stuff on them. It's not like we have a preconceived notion to dash yeah. or to alter or to correct. Um, that said, I don't want to diminish the work that they did because it really is extremely convincing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I guess the natural light aids that the, the performances aid that the, the fact that you can't, and we're going to talk about performance in a minute, but the fact that you can't really understand all of what Tom Hardy is saying. Yeah makes you kind of believe the world a little bit more. It feels like natural lighting in, no question. in, in, in the context of spoken language. Um, like, why didn't they get the microphone closer to him? It's like, oh, well, I get it because we're actually out there and he's actually living this life. Yeah. Um, but all of that to say that I fully agree with you that they, they achieved something with regard to the costuming and the, and the set design, mm-hmm. um, the wilderness design, whatever you want to call it, to make you believe that this was real. Yeah. Um, there's something about the, the, the broad claw wounds on yeah. his on his neck and face and back when you see that 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 maybe is a little bit over the top but you got to expect that from Inuritu too sure um a little bit but even even with that caveat it, it just it, it really does feel like it's a successfully rendered world that you believe yeah that's a that's a a good way of putting it that just everything everything feeds in feeds into and helps everything else mm-hmm you know, the natural light actually helps these costumes seem more real. If you were to use like studio lighting or something like that, I'm sure they'd still do it impeccably, but it's just like, you can't have anything artificial here, uh, whether it be the set design or the costumes because of the way everything else is done. Yeah. If you had costumes that felt a little bit too pristine, then suddenly it's like, Oh, they really jump out at you. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's just he does craft through everything, you know. The, so the film, I, I should mention, the film was nominated for picture, aside from the things that won, obviously, uh, picture, supporting actor, editing, costume design, makeup, sound mixing, sound editing, visual effects, production design. That's everything. Yeah. That's literally everything. And 
Most of that went to Mad Max, didn't it? Most of it went to Mad Max. Um, it's and kind of a shame I'm, in a way. I'm I'm mostly okay with it. In the but context like, of what we're talking about, how con- convincingly it was crafted, yeah. well, and how I much be- you believed it. Well, I believe the world of Mad Max. It's just one that hasn't existed. Um, mm. But uh, but yeah, in a way, aside from the cinematography, it sort of makes sense that if that none of the, that nothing else technical would get an Oscar because it would either need to be everything else or nothing else. It feels like to me, right? Like if you're going to single out that makeup, how do you not single out those costumes? You know, it's, I don't know. It's just a, or the production design or anything else meant right. to, to sell the reality of this world to you. Um, but, uh, okay, let's go ahead and move on to the, the performances, uh, the, the top two primarily, but we can mention anybody else if you like. But yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio finally won his Oscar and everybody's super cynical about it. Like everybody said, like, he doesn't deserve it for this movie, but it's his turn. Uh, it's like all he did was like look dirty and grunt and stuff like that. And uh, and I can see what I can see why people are saying that, but there are there is a precedent for that sort of thing. You know, if you look at like an Adrian Brody in The Pianist, like there is certainly a precedent for performances about simple simple survival uh, being uh, honored at the Oscars. And so, um, I would say I mostly liked his performance and mostly responded to it. Your thoughts? Well, I, I don't like Leo DiCaprio. Oh, okay. <laughs> Can I just lead off with that very broad statement? Why do you dislike him so I, much? I, I think that, um, he's just some pretty, some pretty boy. No, I, 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 it's funny. We're talking about him in the context of the Oscars because I remember when he lost his, uh, maybe his first nomination as a uh, Gilbert great, Gilbert Grape's brother in yes. who's eating what's eating Gilbert Grape, yeah. um, and he played a character who was mentally challenged, and I I've sort of put myself up because of my anyone who's listened to my testimony episode mm-hmm. um, knows that I grew up with a mentally challenged brother, and so I, I've sort of set myself up in my own mind and maybe to certain friends as like the arbiter of you know what is a good performance and what is a bad performance. A bad one would be. Um, Sean Penn and Sam I Am or whatever it's called. Sure. Sam, Sam, I Am Sam. Yeah. Not the Dr. Seuss movie, <laughs> apparently. Um, Sam I Am. Is that, is that, that's Dr. Seuss, right? Yes. Okay. Um, not that one. So, and then a good one, maybe the best, in my opinion, of those that I've seen would be Leo DiCaprio in that movie. I was very dis- mm. disappointed that he didn't get it. I forget who won. Tommy Lee Jones. Really? You know for the, that? For The Fugitive. How did you know that? I don't know. Off I the just, top of your head. I just know things. Wow, that's really impressive. That was 93, right? Uh, I don't even know that. Okay. Um, Pretty sure it was Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, well done. Um, for the fugitive, really? No wonder uh, I was upset. First off... I know, it's a good As movie. good as DiCaprio is, take it easy. That performance by Tommy Lee Jones is amazing. And it's everything that a supporting performance is supposed to be. And that it's just like, he's not indicating anything. He's hmm. not... Like, he's just is that character 100%. Hmm. I believe you. I haven't seen the movie in so long. That I've I seen that movie many, many times. All I remember is like Tommy Lee Jones being gruff. That's all I, all I really but think remember. Of Tommy and Lee pointing Jones guys in different directions to go, do that, do that. Think of how we think of him now. We think of him as like quiet and grumbly and all these other things. Yeah, that's not him. Hmm. Not in that movie, certainly. Uh, that is a different, a different Tommy Lee Jones. I want to see the movie again, especially after uh, the last episode, which you and Reed discussed briefly the greatness of this movie. And I'm like, really the fugitive? Yeah. Cause I haven't seen it in so long. That's just, it feels like a very pop movie. Just like, 
pop, you know, just, it's everything just a pop movie should be. Okay. You know, no, I, I totally buy that. And I, I I'm Nominate putting it on my list. Picture of that movie. Wow. Yeah. Harrison Ford. That's right. Can't go wrong. You really can't. So what was I saying? Oh yeah. DiCaprio. So DiCaprio lost to Tommy Lee Jones, which I guess is fine in the grand scheme of things because he got his Oscar, I guess. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually. Um, but, but that performance I thought was brilliant and he's, he's always good. I mean, he, he's not a bad actor. There's no way anyone could say he's a bad actor. I think that the, this is going to sound so superficial, but the problem that I have with him is that after he, after a certain point in his career, when he actually went, he transitioned from teenager to adult. Yeah. Um, like shortly after Titanic, whatever happened after that, maybe, uh, the beach. Yeah. But even then, like he was playing very specific types of roles. His, his youth still read. Uh, on screen. Yeah. I feel like probably around 2000, probably around the aviator is when it there really started to shift. And the problem I have with him after say the aviator, if that is indeed when the transition took place is that he still sounds like he did when he was a kid, when he was a teenager, he's, his voice hasn't grown up along with his body, which is like big and he's a, he's a man, but yeah. he sounds like a kid. So when I'm watching, uh, the aviator, or Gangs of New York, even. I mean, these are good movies. They're good. Scorsese, obviously, they're going to mm. be good movies. But I, I can't really believe him. I can never believe him. Mm. Um, because he he takes me out of his character anytime he's speaking. Because he still sounds like a kid to me. And I, I just can't get past that. It sounds superficial, but it's the truth. It's like I can't... When I was watching... I remember popping in uh, J. Edgar. That's the one where I'll, I'll grant you what you're saying. Well, I guess that one, because now I'm really thinking about it, is the fact that he's got the old makeup on. So he's yeah. even older. Yeah. Uh, in that, or at least at the beginning of that movie. I couldn't watch more than 10 minutes of it. It felt like a, it was supposed to be a comedy with the way he looked and the way he sounded. I thought, hmm. But um, that's, if that's my main gripe against him, then obviously I, don't, you know, I can't begrudge him an Oscar or the accolades of his billions of fans. Also, he doesn't do a lot of talking in this movie, so that must have well. That's what right I'm getting to. Yeah. That's what I'm getting to is that is that I I like this performance by him because I didn't have to worry about that so much. Even at the beginning, when he does have a voice and he's like this voiceover, he's talking to his son. You know, you just fight, fight to the death, no matter what happens. You know, yeah. all he's saying all these things. He's he's um, manufacturing a voice yeah. that sounds more like a guy from that era might sound, just kind of gruff and like weathered and. Um, he, he's trying to do something different with his voice that I haven't heard him do before. Um, and I, and I bought it right away. And then when he didn't have a voice at all, I was like, okay, this is great. And, <laughs> and all it is, is his, his raw, um, he's, he's got a powerful presence in yeah. any movie he's in. And it seems like most of this, his acting choices, not acting choices, but like choices for the movies he's going to be in mm -hmm. are movies that kind of require him to be, or almost like he wants to be this kind of guy on screen yeah. is the overly emotional guy who's probably lost his wife in some way or is, uh, is, is beset by life in such a way that he has to react in this almost operatic way yeah. that fits this movie. And I don't have to worry, worry about his voice so much. The way I'm putting it sounds really superficial and cheap and like corny or whatever you want to call it. Because why why have such a thing against his voice? But it really does, truthfully, honestly, take me out of his, most of his roles. It's fascinating. Yeah, it doesn't uh, it doesn't really bother me at all. I feel like his voice has aged. You know, it's not you know he's not uh, Pacino or De Niro. Like he doesn't have that kind of a deep voice. But you know, it's a. Uh, 
I still see it as a as a man's voice. Uh, the, I don't. To me, the issue is is in like Jay Edgar. It's like certainly as you go, like he, I think over the course of that film, he's supposed to age like forty years, fifty years, and certainly as you get into your sixties, you know, fifties or sixties, your voice will definitely get more of a husk to it. But he doesn't really. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do it. That's at all. why I had to turn it off. Because yeah. I was like, at least pretend like you're old. Yeah. Don't let the makeup do all the work for you, basically. And in this movie, if I can bring it around again, he doesn't let the makeup do all his work for him. He's yeah. actually, it's the context, too. It's the context of a world where, in our imaginations, we would believe that a person has to be that kind of person where he's, no matter what, he has to, it's a survival kind of place, kind of yeah. world, uh, automatically. It probably was in reality, but then certainly in our imaginations it is. Yeah. Because they don't have any of the luxuries of the kind of life that we have now. None of them. None of them. With, and how do you survive? It's the way he does in this movie. With, yeah, with the the type of character that he's playing, who, even when he's able to talk, doesn't talk much. Right. Um, so everything has to be about the way he carries himself. And he carries himself as a, as a guy who is quite literally weather-beaten. Um, and he just feels tired, and he just feels like he's seen, even at the beginning of the film, he's seen some things that he'd rather not have seen. He's clinging to his son. He's clinging to the things that he can to keep him going, you know, which is why we'll get to this in a moment, but why he clings to the revenge idea, because it's the only thing he has now. Yeah. But, um, you know, and you just see a guy who has just been ground into the snow. dirt and snow by the world and by life. And you just see like a look of, of real sadness and a look of, there's definitely a, a thousand yard stare quality to his performance, but there's also a look of just of, of sadness, but also more than sadness, I'd say resignation. Uh, just the idea is like, but, but that it's not, but it's not always there. You know, he's not playing the character as sadness is at the forefront of his mind. That's a, that's a choice for a modern character. This is a guy who, and it's a time when it's just like people aren't sitting around thinking about their feelings and podcasting about them the way I do. Um, these are real men. These are real men, not me. Uh, they they have things they need to do, whether it be get these furs or take care of their family, and they're just going to do it. But that doesn't mean they're not feeling these things, but the feelings are probably a couple layers down. And but the, it comes through in the eyes and it comes through in moments of silence when at the moment I don't need to worry about uh, the safety of my family or, or getting these furs or whatever. But at the same time, I'm not suggesting the character himself is thinking like, oh, now that I don't have to worry about anybody, now I can go ahead and be sad. It's not a conscious no. choice. It's completely unconscious. And I think Deca that is where DiCaprio does very well in this. He's film. the unpsychoanalyzed man. Yeah. In the tundra. Yeah. But I think uh, I, I read a bunch of reviews and it seems like the overriding feeling is that, that he, uh, that it's not acting because of the way that Inuritu made the movie, which was let's put these actors actually out in the inhospitable snow and yeah. weather and wilderness and then shoot a movie for seven months or whatever it was. And that's the look you get on your face when you're an actor out actually in the inhospitable wilderness. And over time, I'm, I'm just kind of repeating what they're saying. I'm not necessarily agreeing mm -hmm. with them, 
but the uh, the acting award going to a person who is not acting but actually being photographed in a way uh, that reflects how they actually are because they're actually being put through this sort of ringer um, doesn't deserve an award. That's what they're saying. And my uh, my counter argument would be there are some actors who would probably try to act on top of that. Hmm. They would try to be like, okay, I really need to telegraph just how much this hurts, just how cold it is. And so they might add an extra layer of like shivering. They might try to do something, you know, something bigger. Whereas if it's, you know, so many people uh, over the years I've heard complain about like a Jack Nicholson or, or, you know, certain actors like a Jimmy Stewart uh, and just like, ah, he's just playing himself. And like, that's very difficult to do. Yeah. One of the hardest thing, you know, one of the hardest things in the world to do is to be yourself because it means tapping into what you're feeling right now and how you feel in general and how you think in general. And while DiCaprio cannot be said to be playing himself, his reactions to the cold and the dirt and that sort of thing. Uh, he's just letting, if, if, if what these other people are saying is true and that he's just having these natural reactions, well, his choice to ha- to let them be natural reactions and not to act them is also a choice. And it's one that works. It means that he understands because this is a guy who can layer on accents if he wants to and can, and he can be a remarkably physical actor and, and, put things on top of that as we see in movies like you know wolf of wall street it's crazy to think that it's the same actor in that movie as this movie I didn't see that one um it's marvelous and his performance is amazing hmm. um but uh but yeah like he can be a very physical actor and he can and he makes choices depending on the nature of the character and with this he's not it's not that he's not making choices it's that he's not choosing to do anything more than what is required i think as an actor you recognize what is required and either you need to live up to that uh play things down or just keep them where they are and so that is a choice that he is making and you know whether that means he deserves an oscar that who cares about that it only the only thing i care about is do i believe this character and i do because on top of he's experiencing all of these things the thing that for me sells the character is that this isn't the first time he's experienced these things. You know what I mean? Right. And so I think it could probably show a certain degree of restraint on the part of DiCaprio that, that I never look at an actor going through something and thinking, Oh, this is tough. I'm looking at a guy who's experienced stuff like this. And this is probably the worst one of the bunch, but this is not, you know, as I don't like to use the term, but this is not his first rodeo. You know, he's, his whole life has been this. And so, cause that's the thing on top of being like, Oh, I'm in bad shape. The character also has to move in, has to spring into survival mode without it seeming artificial. Like he's doing what the script tells him to do. Um, and so it just seems like this, we need to believe that survival is his instinct and he knows how to do it. And Hugh glass does know how to do it. Leonardo DiCaprio probably does not. And so, but I, I totally believe that this is a guy, you know, when he cram, oh boy, when he crams that gunpowder into his yep. neck wound yeah. and then, and then cauterizes his wound in a very painful way, you know, and he, and he just instinctively knows how to do it, but he also knows it's going to hurt, uh, but does it anyway. Um, you know, that is, that is the character's knowledge. That is the character's instinct. And I never question it for a minute. You know, yeah. there are times when I see actors, often younger actors 
play characters that are supposed to be kind of weather beaten and, and it's just like I don't buy this one bit. One of the things that kept me from embracing the Netflix series Jessica Jones is that the main character is meant to be hard bitten. She's a hard drinking private detective. She's seen some stuff in her life and you know she's she's supposed to seem you know it's a like I said it's a detective story. So they're trying to make this very attractive young woman mm-hmm. seem like a Robert Mitchum type. And it's like I'm really? not I'm not buying it mm. really at all. Her, well, emotionally she's doing some good stuff, but as far as the stuff she's layering on, I'm not buying it one bit. However it can be done. Kids can seem hard bitten. Sure. Yeah. And one case in point is actually Leonardo DiCaprio himself in This Boy's Life, which I don't know if yeah. you've seen this. I mean, he's he's straight out of, like, fresh off the, the growing pains boat, you know? Yeah. And he, so he still looks like that, just like a kid, like a snarky kid, except now he's... That's one of De Niro, right? De Niro's, De Niro's, De Niro's yeah, yeah. like his abusive dad. Yeah. And he's like 13 or yeah. 14, maybe. And smoking and swearing and drinking you wouldn't expect just looking at him that he could pull off that but he does it so believably um, that this would be how a kid like that would react because not only is he a small kid who who gets picked on or would get picked on in any real world scenario because of his size and so would probably have a a braggadocio about him anyway and he's got a kind of a larger than life personality even as a little kid that he would kind of try to be bigger than he is well, on top of that, he's being beaten by his dad. Yeah. And like every day and just wants nothing more than to run away from home. And so he turns to alcohol and smoking and bad friends and all this kind of stuff. And it seems weird because he seems so kind of small and like defenseless, but yeah. he's big and he just really pulls that off very well. And that's a mark of how good of an actor he is. And I feel the same way about uh, Casey Affleck and Gone Baby Gone. Did you see Gone Baby Gone? I did not. Like if you have an issue with voices... Casey Affleck has kind of what could be described as a weak voice. Hmm. Um, I do too. Yeah, but you're not an actor. That's true. Um, I'm acting right now. You're you're covering up your uh, Cockney <laughs> accent uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so that people will buy you more um, and be like, "What? What's this chimney sweep doing on more than one lesson?" Um, but no, Casey Affleck in Gone Baby Gone, like his character's a pri- now he's a private detective in Boston, and Casey Affleck is like a smaller guy with a youthful voice, and his character has to like go up against all these big Boston tough guys. But there are just certain choices that Casey Affleck makes that are often physical choices, but also their choices in like what he does with his eyes that you see. Oh, I don't care that I'm small. I'm going to beat the hell out of these guys and it's like even if he knows that's probably not going to happen they're probably going to win it's like i can't i don't have the energy you know i I can't be thinking in those terms right now i need to think i'm going to win and i'm going to keep going and so and there's just a look in his eyes when he goes into sort of battle mode i need to watch this because i i really do enjoy small guy empowerment movies that's the that is a good one uh it's a really it's a really good movie and a really great performance but yeah uh yeah, it, it bothers me. What I find interesting, and this is something that David actually has said as well over at Battleship Pretension, that uh, there are a lot of critics who don't seem to understand acting. Hmm. They don't seem to know exactly where an actor pulls from to get to do things. Um, and so... And maybe the people that you're talking about, uh, maybe they're not critics or whatever, but, or let's just say non-actors seem to have a difficult time knowing where a performance comes from. Um, 
you know, uh, recently uh, at, at Battleship Retention, our most recent episode uh, has Scott Nye on. Uh, to talk about the TCM Classic Film Fest, and he went to a number of uh, Q and A's, mm-hmm. Q's and A's, um, in which a certain critic would he'd be talking to actors, but he doesn't ask them. He he didn't ask them about their craft. He didn't ask them about their choices. Uh, he had, he wound up just talking about their experiences making the movies, and it's like that's fine. It makes for a lot of fun stories. Is it ben Mankiewicz? That's him. Okay. Um, now, he can talk all day long about a director or a writer and the choices they make artistically. But when it comes to writing, he doesn't seem to understand to acting. know what to ask. Sorry, what did I say? You said writing. Oh, sorry. When it comes to, when it comes to acting, he doesn't I seem think, to though, know how to, uh, what to ask. Is it possible that he probably feels like that the audience that's there to listen to that probably doesn't care as much about that as they do oh, sort of the dirt from the set, you know, 50 years ago? Possibly. But if it's a director, he'll ask directing questions. You know, not just like old school Mm -hmm. gossip, you know, and and this is a thing that I have uh, that I have found. Now, the thing is this. I don't mean to say it's like, well, I've done acting, so I get it. I haven't acted in a long time, but I do understand. But I at least I acted and took a number of acting classes Mm -hmm. and I do understand different theories of acting. And I definitely have opinions on which which of those theories are better. And Um, you know how hard it is. Yeah. To fool yourself into thinking that there is not a camera right there. Yeah. Oh, my God. Or that there's not an audience right there. Yeah. You know, uh, like a moment ago when I said being yourself is one of the hardest things you can do. I found that out in high school. That's just like, does this character have an accent? Yes. Oh, thank God. Hmm. Because if I'm doing just my voice, I come to immediately think I hate my voice. And I'll find myself having a hard time going into my, like, just using my cadence. I've, mm-hmm. I would find a, di- it's like, okay, I can't lean on an accent. So maybe he just talks a different way. I just find some way to not be me. Right. And so to be able to shed that and just be yourself in any, uh, whether it be in, in reaction to something like in the Revenant or in being proactive and, and being motivated by a certain thing, you know, tapping into who you are. And not layering anything on top of that is like one of the hardest, most vulnerable things an actor can do. Yeah. And for people to be dismissive of that and say like, hey, he's just playing himself. Hey, he's just doing what anybody would do. Oh, okay. That in itself can be very difficult for an actor yeah. to do. Um, we can move on. Well, I can't tell you, I was just going to say, I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting on the couch and Aubrey and I are watching a show or a movie and <clears throat> an actor has just done something or a character has just done something. And it's there, it's right there in front of the, of the you know, it's on screen. So clearly there was a camera right there yeah and i'll say i'll pause it even and i'll go i i i could never be an actor if i was called on to do that yeah because it's it requires such vulnerability and it requires i guess this is still vulnerability but it requires finding something inside of yourself that's going to make you react that way yeah and do you really want to do that and and especially if it's that kind of thing that i just saw and it's like a very you know, like a difficult movie about a difficult subject, and this is the bad guy who perpetrated it, perhaps, yeah. and he's getting his moment to, to uh, speak to his side of the story or whatever it is, and he's emotional about it. And how does an actor do that? I don't. I I'm one of those guys who I don't even consider myself a critic necessarily, but I'm one of those guys who's more on the side of the person who doesn't understand mm-hmm. where that comes from. I would never diminish that person's performance. I yeah. would I would be the guy that pauses and goes, "That guy is really good." Yeah. I don't know how he does it. I could never do it. Yeah. Um, but to say that to, get, to be that guy and also meaning the person calling out that actor on how good he is. And then 
to say that DiCaprio is not doing that in this movie yeah. is really baffling to me. I'm with you. I, I spoke what I, I sort of said what I was reading in these articles, right. but I don't I don't side with that. I, I really am impressed by DiCaprio in this movie. I really am. Especially, I keep thinking about the, the bear scene again. And uh, when I watched it today, I was watching him more than the bear because I was I was intrigued at how impossible it would be for me to to scream like he was screaming, knowing I mean, he's basically trusting the CGI, which it doesn't exist yeah. yet. And he's probably being lifted by some hoist or something and moved around in yeah. some way. And he's pretending that he's being, it's just a couple of union guys pulling. <laughs> exactly. Like paint those guys out <laughs> later. Um, and, and he's so believable. And we, and we, we kind of focused earlier on the, the, the CGI, the, the validity of the CGI and how good those guys were that created that bear. But the truth yeah. is that, um, as much of your belief in that scene uh, rests on DiCaprio's performance in that scene. Yeah. And it is, I mean, his face is right in the camera yeah. and he's screaming about a bear ripping his spine out. And he's doing it Screaming believably. about that. So he is saying, a bear is ripping my spine out. <laughs> a little on the nose, I thought. I mean, yeah. maybe. Well, it wasn't nominated for screenplay. There you go. That's why. It's, um, <laughs> it was poor writers, but, but he made it work. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just goes good. to, it's like, the shark head and jaws is obviously fake, but my heart's pounding when Robert Shaw Absolutely dies. Absolutely great parallel. You know? It's exactly right. Um, yeah, in my for some reason this this episode keeps leading to you know this uh, tangent or that one, but um, yeah, I feel like horror actors are like are like the unsung heroes of acting. They will almost never get a nomination or really any respect at all. But when I look at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I mm. look at Marilyn Burns and the yeah. fact that she has to scream consistently for about a half hour yeah. uh, and she has to find that energy in herself constantly, take after take, I look at that and I'm like, that's some of the hardest acting and she has to make that scream convincing. Yeah. That means like, well, I, okay, back in my acting days, I was good at certain things and not great at others. And I had a hard time, I had a hard time laughing on cue I had a, and mm. I had a hard time, not that I ever had to scream, but like, I was thankful that I never, I would never yeah. have to scream. Cause like, I don't know if I can find the reserves for this kind of unparalleled fear. Yeah. The fear of death, the fear of uh, my life is over and just being faced with that, which is what DiCaprio is faced with in that moment. And just like, I don't know if I could summon that up. Yeah. I'm thinking about uh Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and similar to the performances in this movie and the costumes and the makeup, the the feeling that this is actually happening in a real world, it's not a CGI crafted world. Yeah. It's actual wilderness. It helps you to believe that. And that's the yeah. same, I believe, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre because you it looks like they just set up a camera in a place that actually really exists yeah. and wasn't dressed. It was just some creepy guy's house. And it feels like it's probably using nat a lot of natural lighting too, probably by virtue of its low budget. Um, but the low budget actually lends itself to making you believe it more. It's like found footage almost. And so her performance, while great, and you do believe her screams, it's helped by the fact that you feel like this is like the whole thing just feels so creepily real. Yeah. That movie. And I remember you guys mentioned in the last episode too. And it's like, uh, yeah, you guys are right on the money. It's like the, the, the sound of the chainsaw. Mm. While it might be, you know, uh, a, a directorial choice or a sound editing choice, it still makes it feel more real somehow because that's yeah. how it would be in that moment. It's like that the sound of this chainsaw yeah. is like always in your ear, yeah. no matter how far away it is, because it's going to kill you. Um, 
I didn't realize that I would go off on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's but, fine. Nothing wrong with that. Oh, yeah. I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm not a horror movie guy, but that's that's a, an especially effective movie. Yeah. Brief story. Sure. I saw it when I first time, maybe even the last time fully, when I was about 11, believe it or not. My dad didn't care what I saw. And we were at my uncle's house. And he and my uncle were watching it and let me watch it with them. And then I had to sleep in a room by myself in a house that I wasn't familiar with. Mm. It was horrifying. And uh, and just the constant screaming in that movie, yeah. as you mentioned, for an 11-year-old kid, it's extremely traumatic. That's a stressful movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Maybe that's why I don't like horror movies in general now is because my experience with that movie was extremely difficult. Understandable. Um, so... Thanks. I will will pivot to Tom Hardy's performance, which is a very different kind of performance. You know, that's one where he's definitely he's he's called upon to. I'd say he has like I don't know ninety five percent of the dialogue. Um, Probably so. I'm overstating, but not by much. Um, you know, he has a lot of weight on his shoulders. Uh, you know, DiCaprio definitely. You know, most of the film is spent with him. There's a lot going on with his performance. That's fine, but like we we spend a lot of time with Tom Hardy and he has to craft a character that is at once loathsome, primarily loathsome, a guy who doesn't care if he's loathsome, who's going to do what he needs to do, but a guy who also has seen a lot and has experienced a lot. You know, you see that scar on his head and you're like, oh, this is a guy who's had a tough life. Yeah. And there's a, a line that I didn't write down, but boy, I love it, where someone asks him about like his life and he goes life what are you talking about i don't have any life i only have a living hmm. you know and he's like oh that's tough that a guy says i don't have a life yeah you know um and you believe it i believe it a hundred percent and that's the thing is his character goes a long way to showing us the world as well that he's just one of these guys there are probably a lot of these guys out there who just the world has spit them out. They have nowhere else to go, so they should go. They'll go into the wilderness, do what they can to make a little bit of money, and just not die. Like survival is kind of all they have. And when you look at that, it gives you under like this character is the villain. He's fairly unrepentant. He's often quite malicious. But this is a film about, among other things, survival. Now, we look at DiCaprio and what he's willing to do to survive, and we look at that as like a noble struggle. Now, what Tom Hardy does, he's duplicitous, he's murderous, all of that is bad, but he's doing it to survive. In his view, like if he and Will Poulter's character, Bridger, if they stay by DiCaprio, who's probably going to die, if they stay too long, the Indians will be upon them and they will die. So he makes a choice. So that he doesn't have to die. It's, it is a survival instinct. It's no less a survival instinct than what DiCaprio has. It's just that he is, I won't say required, but in his own mind, he is required to do harsher things. And so even though the character is very unlikable, I still find him actually pretty sympathetic. Even when he's doing his best not to be sympathetic, you know, at any moment, uh, when he's faced with, with, you know, what he did to DiCaprio's son, you could have him say, I'm sorry, but boy, he doesn't. Instead, he insults the dead. Yeah. Uh, so, like, this is not a guy that we like, but it is a guy that I understand. Well, there's a... a Even when I don't understand him, you know, because sure. he's not always... Well, testament to, to that feeling that you have for him is that moment when he finds out that he's not either not going to get paid as much or he's not getting paid at all. Yeah. There's, instead of going, oh, he got his, you know, he, he deserved nothing. Yeah. Um, because of the kind of person he is, you actually kind of feel sorry for him. It's like yeah. that you feel more, I think 
I think people probably relate to that more than DiCaprio's. Do you even know the the, the moment yeah, yeah, I'm talking about? It's like, absolutely. It's like when uh, Gleason says to him, he says, oh, the company paid more for you to do what you did than we promised to pay you. So you get nothing. Yeah. It's like, oh, that sounds a lot like life, the life he's talking about. I don't have a life. I have a living. Yeah. So that's just one more step backwards from actually having a life is like, wow, all of this work I did. The fact that I laid my own life on the line no. for your stinking pelts, and then, then I don't even get paid, or I don't get paid as much as I thought I was going to get paid. No. Um, basically, the, the system is screwing me. It's like, I really, I felt for that guy at yeah. that moment, and I wouldn't feel for him in that moment, or I would feel differently if I, if I didn't already feel kind of sympathetic for him already. So I'm speaking to what you, you were saying, which is that he, he paints a guy who is loathsome, does terrible things that we say that we wouldn't do, yeah. but that we probably would Especially in, that's, in that world. Exactly. Yeah. And leave DiCaprio because you don't like him anyway. Yeah. And he, by staying by his side, you're going to get killed. Of course you'd leave. Yeah. Um, you might not kill his son. That, that was a little over the top, possibly, because it was unnecessary. Yeah. Makes you hate him more in a movie kind of way. Um, but yeah, he is, he is ultimately a sympathetic character because he's along, um, alongside these other guys who are just living this very pitiful life. Yeah. And you're just seeing him more up close than the other guys, but he, they're all the same. And I think you, you nailed it earlier when you said that his performance and the fact that you can't always tell what he's yeah. saying. And just the fact that, I mean, this is a, this is a performance that is not, that do, it doesn't care about letting you in. Mm-hmm. He is who he's going to be. I don't care who I'm talking to. I don't care who's listening. That includes the audience. I'm going to be who I am. And it almost feels like a comic turn in a way. Oh, it's, he's, often very funny um in, an, in like an absurd goofy way uh but that's the thing i think that also springs from this idea it's like this guy can't help but be himself he's had too many things happen to him for him to, to try to worry about you know laws but also just general decorum and so what he will often say or do is funny uh you know in a dark way but um but I think that that helps to build the world just as much as as the costumes or anything like that, that this guy who could be described as, you know, a mountain man or whatever you want to say, that he is there. And, you know, in the same way that this world seems very hostile towards us, the viewers, it's just like, like do you want to be a part of this world? Yeah, I didn't think so. In that same way, he himself and his performance is like, do you do you really want to live like these guys? Do you want to do you really want to watch this? Yeah, no, you don't. Yeah, this is a horrible, horrible world. Um, and yeah, it's a it's a really marvelous performance. And um, and like they all say about his performance, it's like he's Tom Hardy is brilliant at kind of hiding himself. Yeah. You know, he just sort of gets absorbed by the character or he absorbs the character. And he does that in this. If I didn't know it was him, I wouldn't be thinking, wait, is that even Tom Hardy? I don't think that I would even recognize him Yeah, too much. Um, but I love the fact that he was mumbling and that he, uh, that we didn't quite understand what he was saying. It's like a, it's like a song that, that you can't quite understand the lyrics to it. So you listen to it over and over again. It's part yeah. of the charm of it is like, what, what are they saying? You don't look it up, look up the lyrics. So you just kind of live with it that way. And then, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like that where it's like you, there's a mystery about him because you don't hear him. And that's clever. I think clever on the part of Inuri too, but also on the part of Tom Hardy to not speak up. It's a, it's like Popeye. I keep thinking of Popeye, (laughs) you know, Robin Williams as Popeye. I mean, (laughs) yeah. So it's like, what are you, what are you saying? And everyone else is going, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? Um, 
Yeah, one of the reasons... So I've only seen this film once. Um, I'm sure I'll watch it maybe once or twice more over the course of my life. But if I do, a, a good portion of it will be so that I can see that performance again. Tom um, Hardy. Yeah, because that's one where I feel like... I'll bet, as much as we've been talking about it now, I bet I didn't even get everything the first time. No, I, don't no mean, I don't mean understanding the words, but I mean like looks he's given, mm-hmm. he's giving and, and you know, little bits of uh, physicality because the character is also quite fearful, you know, and that. Well, he, that's why he leaves DiCaprio because he's already afraid of him. You can yeah. tell that in the scene when he walks up to him and his son. Yeah. And the kind of things he's saying is these sort of like bragging things or like pushy things, but he, yeah. you know, he's not going to go as far as actually touching DiCaprio yeah. or even really getting closer to his face than he already is. He's, he's afraid of him. There's also that wonderful scene that doesn't necessarily play into what we're talking about right now, but there's that wonderful scene where he is quote unquote asking DiCaprio whether or not he wants to die. And right. he says like blink. Oh, that's so frustrating. Yes. And it's just like, and it's just the deals that this guy, and the deals that this guy is making with himself in order to survive is, yeah. is fascinating. Um, it's like asking God for a fleece. Yeah. <laughs> and make it just some ridiculous thing. Um, well, what's, uh, what's interesting about that moment to me is the, the blinking scene, the blinking moment is that he's asking him because he's being Tom Hardy's character. He's being Fitzgerald. Is that his name? Yeah. Uh, he's being Fitzgerald in that he's looking for a way to kind of assuage his own guilt. Yeah. And DiCaprio knows it. And you can see DiCaprio trying to keep his eyes open. Don't blink at all. Yeah. But then he clearly willfully does. He, he actually blinks his eyes. It's like, yeah. okay, so I'm going to, I'll just leave you here then. Yeah. But it's almost like at that moment, uh, DiCaprio is giving up too. Yeah. If memory serves us before his son is killed. Yes, I believe so. Which of course changes everything. Yeah. Um, but you almost get the sense that DiCaprio knows he's done for too. So, okay, just leave me. See, I actually took that purposeful blink as... I dare you? Sort of a... Uh, Sort of a defiance, but also more just like, this guy's going to do what he's going to do no matter what. So what Hmm. am I doing not blinking? You know, I Hmm. might as well just do this and get it over with. It's not, it's, it's not so much a resignation, but there, there can be a defiance and like, just do it, just get it over with. It's not like I want to leave. Like he clearly wants to survive. He wants to be with his son and all that sort of thing. Uh, but it's like, this man is going to kill me one way or another and he's making these little deals with himself. So you know what? I'm, I'm tired of acting as though I'll be able to right. talk him out of it without the use of my voice. Um, but, uh, so we should start, uh, moving, uh, in, in other directions now, but, uh, but yeah, one thing that I, that I find interesting about the film, and this maybe will get us into the theme a little bit, um, is that, you know, this is a film ostensibly about revenge, I think it, I think it is, but I, I think it uses, like you said, it uses a, a standard revenge story to actually dig into to deeper things, and and it elevates it by uh, you know the way Inuri Two makes the film, but uh, but yeah, there definitely is a revenge thing going on, but it's it's this weird combination of is it a survival story or or is it a revenge story, and I think it is both. I think it is the idea that these two things are interwoven, um, and that. You know, does is DiCaprio surviving so he can get revenge, or is he using revenge as a motiva- motivator to survive? You know, I don't actually know the answer to that, and I kind of like that. Um, that uh, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? 
I feel like it's more the first. It's like okay. um, he, like the only thing left, I think you even used this phrase earlier, the yeah. only thing left to him is his revenge yeah. because his family's been taken away from him slowly but surely. Um, so yeah, I, I, I never wavered from the feeling while I was watching it that the reason he keeps going and what's motivating him to take that next step um, or to eat that fish or whatever it is yeah. to survive those rapids is because he wants to kill this guy. And that's his lifeblood. That's that's why he's still alive. Yeah. That's just a feeling I got. And it feels like the movie is telling me that. I don't know another way. To, I mean, I, I agree with you that it's both. Mm-hmm. That it is the, the need to survive. It is a survival movie. Um, but it's to me, it's definitely, it feels like it's telling me that the movie is, that, that it's about revenge being such, um, so white hot still in your mind. Yeah that that's the only thing kind of dragging you through all of this wilderness. So let me ask you this. Okay. Because I find this scene interesting. There comes a moment when DiCaprio is alone and he writes, Fitzgerald killed my son. Mm-hmm. Why did he write that? I'm not saying this as, a, as, a, as like a challenge to what you're saying. I'm asking in a general sense, like, why did he write that? Who is it for? It's not for anybody. It's just for himself. It's like, why is he writing it for himself? Well, we talked about the unpsychoanalyzed man before. Mm -hmm. Um, He has no one to talk to. Yeah. He's a, he's a person who has even been deprived of his own voice. Mm -hmm. So even if someone was around, he still couldn't express what's on his mind. Yeah. Um, I don't know this might sound a bit grandiose, but just to your question, um, we are a creative people you know we're creative creatures we we need to create and he's expressing himself i think that's the mm-hmm. bottom line is that he he has such a need to keep going because of this this is the only thing that he that he would write he's yeah. not going to write um wow i killed the buffalo today you know it wasn't <laughs> wouldn't be like that it would be like what's what's out in front of him yeah that is the motivation this guy killed my son i i have to I have to rectify the situation. I have to avenge my son. That's all I have. And he scrawls it out on the wall or whatever it is, or writes it in, in pen knife into his wrist or whatever, whatever other movie you want to think of Mm -hmm. that has a similar kind of thing. It's like, that's, it's got to get out of him. And he hasn't been able to, to this, to that point. And so, I mean, I don't think the, I might not be answering the, the, uh, the question correctly because the truth is that the scene feels a little passive. It's almost like a, a little breather yeah. kind of moment. And he just kind of writes it on the wall. It's not like he's, with every last ounce of his right. strength, he's carving it with his own tooth, you know, and whatever. It's not that. It feels more more passive than that, more gentle than that. More matter of fact. Um, it, but I don't, I, don't, I don't really know. That's the best answer I can give off the cuff. And now that you mention it, I th- you mentioned the idea of him being deprived of his own voice. You know, I wonder, I might just be speaking for me, but there have been times in my life when something big happens and I find that even though it's something I've known for a while and I'm just perpetually aware of it I f- there's something powerful about the first time you say it uh, like the first time you say my wife hmm. instead of my girlfriend or fiance yeah. you know that's a big deal or you know obviously because everything eventually comes back around this um literally saying that someone is dead. Yeah. Not passed away, not gone, dead. 
that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and he can't say it. He literally can't say it. And so maybe as a way of making it kind of real, for, it, there's definitely a motivational quality, which is I'm going to write this as a reminder to myself to keep going. But it's almost like, well, I can't say it aloud. I can't say this reality. So I guess I'll just write it so that it's so that it's true in a way that is not merely inside my head so that it's true in the world. So somebody could run across, you know, he's not doing it for posterity, but like somebody could run across this and know that this is a fact, that this is a real thing. This is who I am right now. This is who I am. This exact moment. I, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking about all the times that, I mean, I'm a writer, so I, I write even in my off time when I'm feeling nothing, um, often, but I can, I can recall times like maybe I'm at work just for one instance, um, for one example, I might be at work and something happens that so frustrates me. Yeah. There's no one at work that I can tell that to because it would just deepen the hole. Yeah. Um, and so I'll, I'll go to my either notepad or I'll go to a blank word document and I'll type and I just get it out and it's like, and then I can read it. And sometimes that's some of the best writing I ever, I've ever done. Yeah. A case in point of that is, uh, the week that my, speaking of dead, mm-hmm. the week that my father was passing away and we knew that he was passing away cause he was, we'd take basically taken the machine off, we'd unplug the machine mm-hmm. and it took him eight days to die. Yeah. And so during that time, every single day I was writing in a journal, just in a, a notepad and I still have that stuff and I still look at it every now and then. And it's like, I look at it not for, I don't need a reminder of how I felt at that time. Yeah. I don't need a reminder that it happened at all. Um, it's extremely vivid in my mind whether I wrote anything down or not. But when I look at that and I read it, it is so perfectly pinpoint how I felt. Yeah. And it is actually some of the best real writing that I've done that wasn't for a script or, or even just to say what happened today in a journal that I still keep. It's, it's, it's almost primal. Yeah. And that word primal gets us back to the movie, which is he's in, in, can you imagine a more primal kind of scenario for a human being than to be left with absolutely nothing in the middle of nowhere and you can't even speak and you don't know if you're going to make it another day. And yet you have this burning need to rectify a situation to avenge a death and you just, you have to scrawl it. You have to write it down. And it speaks to what you're talking about him, uh, him being like a, an unanalytical man, certainly about himself. Um, and so, you know, you're writing how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not a guy who cares much about how he's right. feeling. The, literally the only thing, the closest he can come to saying how he's feeling, and maybe it's the same thing to him, is literally to write the fact that yeah. he knows mm-hmm. and the fact that is driving him. Yeah. You know, um, like if he had a journal, if it wasn't just, you know, it's also, you know, you're not going to be able to write a whole book, a whole page of stuff on this blog or whatever. Sure. But I feel like even if he had a journal, he would simply write Fitzgerald killed my son over and over again, over and over again. Um, yeah. So I do think that the film, again, like it just astounds me that people are so willing to write this film off narratively because moments like that. First off, yes, I recognize there's a story being told, but it's primarily a character movie. And moments like that speak so are, are so, I think, insightful 
about who people are and how we process anything, but also understanding the world that he lives in and, and the time that he lives in uh, and how he would express these things. And I feel like it just does a really great job at that. Um, and the idea, and I find myself wondering, and this is a thing that, that you'll find in a lot of revenge movies, um, that the person will get their revenge or get some kind of revenge. Um, and someone will ask, or they will ask, which is like, well, what do I do now? You know, this is all I was living for. Yep. So who am I, you know, for even though for him, it's only, it's only been maybe a, a week, a couple weeks or something like that. But like for those two weeks, my identity is I'm the guy that's going to kill the guy who killed my son. Right. That's who I am. Mm -hmm. And then once that's over, it's, well, I'm not that anymore, but I'm also not a dad anymore. Yeah. I'm not. And I stopped being a husband a long time ago. So now who am I? But this is not a film, but ultimately the character does not directly get his revenge. He kind of gets it. Uh, you know, he, he lets somebody he knows else, what's going to happen. It's, yeah, he lets somebody else carry it it's out. It's a cop out. We'll talk about that more, but yeah. it, it feels very cop outish. Uh, yes, I agree. Cop outish? Did I just um, say? A cop out esque is the there word. Yeah, um, but yeah, uh, I, I feel like uh, this is a, a worthy entry in the revenge subgenre of movie. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and so I'll, I'll go ahead and bring in uh, the companion film. It is written and directed by Sean Penn. It is called The Crossing Guard. It stars Jack Nicholson, David Morse, Angelica Houston, Robin Wright, Piper Laurie, and, and, and others. But uh, it is the story of this man living in Los Angeles who is, uh, lives something of a decadent lifestyle. He's a jeweler. And the day comes that... That's Nicholson. That's Nicholson. Thank you. Um, the day comes that... Uh, that uh, uh, the man who killed his daughter, the drunk driver who killed his daughter, is getting out of jail today after five years. And so he decides, I'm going to go kill this man. Uh, and so he confronts him. The, 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 I don't think the gun misfires. I think he's just, he was just too drunk to load it or something like that. And so the two have a very brief conversation, which the, the, the former drunk driver, played by David Morris, says, well, look, I'm not going anywhere. So please just give me a few days. Think about it. Uh, and it's clear like, oh, well, he's also going to think about it because both of these men are grieving over, you know, what what has happened. Mm -hmm. And the question is, like, does Jack Nicholson really want to kill this guy? But also, does David Morris want to die? So it kind of gives them both time to think about it. Uh, and so then it's just the events of those next three days as we see uh, primarily Nicholson deal with his feelings and talk to his uh, now ex-wife played by Angelica Houston and that kind of thing. Um, so I first saw this film probably like in 1998, 97 maybe, like shortly after it came out and I was, I was young and I was really into everything Nicholson. Um, and I was, and I rewatched it yesterday. I was surprised how much it stayed with me. Uh, there are things that definitely turned me off of the film now. I think it is very emotionally overwrought, um, which I was okay with, uh, because of the film that I'm, you know, pairing it with. Um, but there's just something about the way Sean Penn makes movies. He makes his movies the way he acts, which is big, big and always <laughs> uh, showing you just how hard he's working all the time. Yeah. Um, 
but underneath, and so there's like these little stylistic things that I'm like, okay, all right, I saw that in film school, you know, get over it. Sean it Penn. felt very much like a film school movie to me. Yeah. But underneath, he does give the actors opportunities. He creates characters that are pretty well developed, or at least there's a lot of potential there. And I think the actors, for the most part, find that potential. Um, and that, to me, is what I like about it. And as I start watching it, Yesterday, I was like, oh, boy, is this a bad choice for a companion film uh, just because there's so many things that I don't stand by anymore. But then as I saw some of the choices, both of because Sean Penn wrote it as well, some of the choices that Sean Penn makes as a writer for Nicholson's character, but also that some of the choices that Nicholson makes for his character. I look at that and I think like, OK, I'm, I'm actually totally on board with this. Uh, the film itself is only OK. Sometimes the writing is really on the nose, but. There are, I think, some, like we were saying before, like, I think The Revenant is very insightful about human nature and what humans need uh, and how they react to things. Uh, and I think The Crossing Guard is as well, with Nicholson's character especially, and you just see how he has devolved since the the death of his daughter, that it's always sort of in his mind. Well, it's... He is, he's he's living a life that is perpetually distracting him from this thing, but it's always there. But it's not there in a way that he's actually grieving over it. Like you hear about the grief process. It's a thing where it's a thing. It's a process because you're working through it, which means that you'll get out of it. Not to imply that you won't feel sad that that person is gone or anything like that. But you get to a point where you can emotionally move on as his ex-wife has done. Whereas with him, he just holds on to it. He doesn't, it's not a process. It's just a state of being perpetually. And one that he will, one that has probably caused him to drink a lot more, which has caused some problems as well. Um, But also it drives him into, like I said, a kind of a decadent lifestyle that seems to be more about distracting himself until the day when he can finally get his revenge. But his life is very much like a, oh, okay, well, even if you do it now, you know, definitely what are you, who are you now? Um, and so there's, uh, the idea that this character who everybody would inherently sympathize with, oh my gosh, a drunk driver killed your, your young daughter. You are a grieving father. How horrible. But that his, by holding on to his grief, he actually manages to become an unlikable person because he's now being defined primarily by this bad thing in his life. He's defined by an absence in his life. And, you know, if you're defined by an absence, then I feel like you'll be looking to fill that absence with really anything. And I don't know, there's, there's some stuff, there's really, upon watching it again, there's some stuff that I really liked. And I really like that Nicholson gave a performance that is very, uh, that is not merely unsympathetic, but like it is, it is unselfconscious. He commits to this character in all his, in all of his ugliness. Um, I also think Angelica Houston does a great job, but um, I don't know. So that this is my second time seeing it in you know the last twenty years. Uh, the, you're, you saw it for the first time yesterday. I watched it yesterday. It's yeah. the very first time I've seen it. Yeah. I've never even been inclined to see it um, yeah. for whatever reason. Maybe it's because I, I also have sort of a visceral reaction against Sean Penn. Sure. Um, I my the the image of Sean Penn that I always have in my mind when I think Sean Penn is Sean Penn in Mystic River when he's being surrounded by yeah. all those guys and he's like, just, like crying out for his daughter. I yeah. forget is what, that my daughter in there? Is that my yeah. daughter in there? And it's just so over the top. But then that's Eastwood, right? Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Sort of let that happen too. So it's not yeah. just Sean Penn. It's like Eastwood, not 
saying something to Sean Penn, like, hey, dial it down just a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I think I think Sean Penn allows his character or his actors to kind of do what they want to do, mm. um, even in the absence of a script, I think. Yeah. And there are moments in this movie, uh, I'll get this out of the way first because there are good things about the movie. Um, there are way too many moments where it feels like you can just feel the absence of direction yeah. um, with regard to what the actor is doing or what the character is doing in that scene. Like at the end of a scene, I'm like, why didn't we see that? Nothing was developed by that scene. It's just another scene of him with some women at a restaurant. Yeah. And it went on for about a minute and a half or two minutes. And you're like, okay. So some guy comes up to the table and wants to hang out with him and his beautiful women. Yeah. Also, and then they get in a... Probably a, assuming they are prostitutes. Assuming they're prostitutes. And um, and then they get in a fist fight. And then that's sort of the end of that. That That's the end of that. Mm-hmm. There's no ramification for having just destroyed a restaurant, really. Um, it's just so that this moment can happen. And I guess in, I guess that's not bad in and of itself. It's just that there are so many of those kind of things in the movie. Yeah. I think the worst offender is Robin Wright in her scenes. And she's not a bad actress. She's a good actress. Yeah. But in the scenes with her and David Morris, it's clear, to me anyway, it just seems this way, that there w- weren't a whole lot of written lines for either one of them. Hmm. And it's stuff like there's a long pause and Robin Wright, who's looking into the face of David Morse, will say, you're so beautiful and I just love the way your eyes slope and yeah. you're just so kind. And, and there, but there are long pauses between these. Like yeah. this movie needs to be edited down. It would be yeah. so much more powerful and palpable and believable um, if it was just edited from a minute 50 to a minute I mean, not a minute, an hour and 50 to about an hour and a half. It, d- it definitely feels like a movie directed by an actor. You know, exactly. Who, he left wants him. to theoretically give actors space to really yeah. explore these characters. But there's, if there's no story being developed also, yeah. then then it becomes a showcase. And then if there's nothing interesting being done by the actor in that moment, then you just got a string of those. And yeah. that becomes boring. And I was really bored by most of the movie. What I liked about the movie was what you described a second ago is the fact that the uh, the guy who has every reason to kind of feel the way he does is sort of the bad guy. Yeah. And the guy who, you know, is the terrible man who did this to this family and destroyed it and killed a girl um, is incredibly symp- sympathetic. It's David Moore, so it's going to be sympathetic yeah. anyway, I think. He does have very kind eyes. He does. The way they slope, I think, sure. is what's having that effect. Long um, pause. And he's so beautiful. Um, so so I, I like that. Not that that hasn't been done in a billion other movies, but sure. I, I, I just liked it in this movie. Maybe I was just hanging on to anything I could. What I really appreciated about the movie was I was slogging through it. Mm-hmm. It felt longer than The Revenant, frankly. Yeah. Um, but I, I got to the end, and uh, should, should we talk about the end? I don't know if how many people um, have seen this. I'm going to go ahead and say spoilers for The Crossing Guard. It's not a well-known film, so if you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix, by the way, so if you're interested, you know, neither of, us, neither of us are saying it's a perfect film. I think it is a flawed film. Majorly. I think there's a great film buried in yeah. this film. I think, like you said, if you were to cut some things out, it would be a really marvelous film. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so let's go ahead and say for the next couple of minutes, yeah. spoilers. So by <clears throat> by the I guess three three fifths mark of the movie things are kind of cooking with regard to okay these guys are going to finally meet Nicholson has the gun um, Morris is 
is basically saying, yeah, I assume this is going to happen. By the time they actually meet, Morse has a gun as well. Yeah. They got a gun on each other. Um, things transpire. They end up uh, at the gravesite. It's a long story, but yes. the last 15 minutes of the movie are actually pretty good. Um, they end up at the grave of the little girl, mm. um, which has not been visited by either one of them. Morse tried to earlier in the movie, but yeah. he was... Um, and he's likely running there on purpose, right? Like, I, I don't know. It'd be a weird coincidence. And maybe Sean Penn is saying it's like, well, well, unconsciously, that's where he's running. Well, it felt okay, sort of fable-like in a way yeah. as the movie went on, because there are things like when Nicholson is running away from the cops. Okay, there's another another moment that should be explained, but I'm not going to. Yeah. Um, he's running away from the cops um, in L.A. And he's on the highway and suddenly like just cut to he's at David Morris's house. Right. And so in my mind, I'm like, I know how big L.A. is. I know how hard it is to run from wherever to wherever. And that's like falling down. And it should be its own movie. Yeah. Um, let's see how he got from the highway to Morris's house. But the fact that that happens by that point is like, OK, the movie's flawed anyway. I'll just accept that as a flaw. But it also feels kind of like there's an inevitability about it. It's like yeah. this. These things are going to happen. Um one way or the other. So it's happening now and I'm watching it happen. So they get to the grave and he's still got the gun. He hands Morse the gun. Yeah. Morse puts the gun down, but the moment that kicks it for me, it makes it a movie we're talking about is the moment when Nicholson, who's weeping now yeah, because he's never been to this grave. It's been established. He's never actually visited the grave of his daughter. Yeah. He's there. He's seeing that the grave is pink. Yeah. And he says the grave is pink and he's saying this through tears and Morse is looking at it, and they're both just kind of sitting there looking at it and each other, and Morse is like, what the heck's going to happen next? Um, what the heck's going to happen next? has a nice ring to it. Um, and just, it feels almost like this is one of those, like, actorly moments, like you just thought of it in the moment, which is good, as a testament yeah. to it, but Nicholson just puts his hand out. And there's a moment of pause, like, Morse is like, what, what? And he puts his hand out, and that's how the movie ends. Yeah. Is them holding hands over the grave of one's daughter and one's victim. Yeah. And it's like, wow, that's, that's actually really moving and powerful. And it perfectly illustrates, um, what would you call it? Reluctant forgiveness. Sure. Or reluctant. Uh, that's Nicholson's part, but on Morse's part, it's reluctant, reluctant, um, moving on past guilt, whatever the word. Yeah. That I mean, be. forgiveness of self, I guess. Forgiveness of self. Yeah, uh, exactly. And I feel like the movie, as bumpy and as poor, let's face it, in my opinion, yeah. as it is up to maybe the last 15 minutes, it really works to make you feel that moment. Yeah. And it's it's a wonderful ending to a very bad movie, <laughs> in my opinion. Well, and and what's odd to me is like, I had, as I was watching, it's like, I had a surprisingly good memory of a movie I hadn't seen for, you know, 18 years uh, or more. Um I remember basically every scene with Nicholson and Angelica Houston. I think all those scenes are really good. Yeah, they're both really, um, really great. I remember this scene, and I remember basically the last 15 minutes. I really like when Nicholson gets pulled over by the cops. Like, that moment feels very real, and I feel like it yeah. does a lot to uh, flesh out the Nicholson character, just the way that he... It shows that he he's he like has the ability to be a responsible adult. Like the fact that he immediately gets out of the car. Yes, it says like there's exactly. a gun on the seat. Yeah, I have a permit for it. It's in my wallet. Like he's doing all the things that you're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know for some reason like that 
that scene really stuck with me. But then, and from, the, and maybe it's, it stuck with me because it's the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of, he's now running to David Morris's house. And I definitely, and I definitely remember even after all these years, I remember the, obviously it's the last shot, but like, I remember them holding hands at the grave and just like, and it's so weird because so many people would look at that and be like, that's hokey. But for whatever reason, maybe because we're seeing the two best actors in the film and Jelke Houston's very good. Don't get me wrong. But like we're seeing not in it much though, not in it much, but we're seeing, you know, developed characters, um, both of whom I think their individual arcs ha- are, have been pretty well fleshed out. And now we're seeing them at the end together mm-hmm. being together and being willing to be together, you know? And, you know, Nicholson is one of those actors that I think a lot of people feel like they, they, they know what he can do. You know, they know his bag of tricks and all that kind of thing. Movies like this, Nicholson does really well when he's paired with Sean Penn because he did the pledge and I think he's Which doing great. great work. Which is great. Such a much better movie. Yeah. I kept thinking of that movie. Like, why couldn't this be as good as that? Yeah. Well, it's because it came out because he made it five years before. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like Nicholson, he is in many ways, quote unquote, being himself. He's not putting on an accent or anything like that. He's, you know, he's often wears sunglasses. He's got like a nice suit jacket on, you know, and, and sometimes being kind of outrageous and that sort of thing, but he's dying. He he's, he's turning the dial to a very specific place within himself where it's just like, you know, if you take these Nicholson mannerisms and, and the, the reputation that he has for like being kind of a womanizer and kind of a hard living guy and you, and you just turn it to a certain degree. It's like, man, this guy's unpleasant. And, and you, and then he also layers on choices in regards to like what, how this character has carried his grief and how he reacts to it. Um, I don't know. I think it's a great performance by him. Um, and I like David Morris as well. Um, I don't think I like any of his friends. You know, like uh, when we see David Morris, like getting back to his life. Oh, yeah. Part of me is like, oh, stay in prison, man. Yeah. Um, it's like, I know that there's that one thing that happened and that's not good. But aside from that, I think prison is probably preferable to these yeah. guys. Um, but yeah, it's it's a film that I would say is is worth watching as long as you know that you're not going to get you're not getting a perfect film or even even a good one. I think it is a good one. If you take it in in its entirety, it is a good movie. Uh, it certainly is not a great movie. Um, and there are scenes that just, just could be cut, uh, trimmed, if not Absolutely. cut completely, you know, um, great ending, g- great ending, um, and good performances. So, so yeah. And that speaks to, to a thing that, that I wanted to talk about it. So we have, you know, obviously, uh, we have in, uh, Hugh Glass and Freddie Gale, we have these two, the DiCaprio and Nicholson. We have these two characters that are very much defined by their grief. Now, admittedly, for the Freddy character, it's been five years, whereas for Hugh, it's only been, you know, maybe a couple weeks at most. Um, But nonetheless, it's like once I do this thing, it's not even so much once I do this thing, I'll be happy. Or it's just like, there's a thing I need to do. And this is all I've been living for, for a while. This is what has allowed me to, you know, this is what I've been surviving for and and that kind of thing. Um, and I don't know, we don't necessarily see it have the decaying effect on Hugh that it has, but it makes me wonder what if, uh, what if Fitzgerald eluded him Hmm. and continued to elude him? 
would Hugh just continue chasing him? Hmm. There actually comes a moment when he's in a safe place, and then the law says, oh, well, we'll go get Fitzgerald. Now, it tur- now the law turns out to have been, you know, unable to do so, but if, this, if it's about justice, you know, if it was simply about justice, it's like, all right, I will let the law take care of this, but it's not. It is about, I'm going to do it. And mm-hmm. that, so that's the difference between justice and revenge. And so this is a guy bent on revenge. And so I think we realize that in his current state, if Fitzgerald had slipped away from, from him and decided to go across the country, DiCaprio would have chased him as, as far as he could. I believe that. Um, there is uh, a bit of a something of a cop out at the end where they're trying to sort of have their cake and eat it too. Like they want to make sure that Fitzgerald gets his, uh, you know, it reminds me of, uh, Batman begins where, you know, Batman doesn't kill people, but at the end, uh, he says to Ra's al Ghul, he says, uh, I'm not going to kill you, but that doesn't mean I have to save you. Hmm. And then Batman leaves this uh, speeding train that Ra's al Ghul is on, and then it crashes. And part of him's like, eh, it, might, him. it might mean that, actually. Uh, this is kind of a, if I were Ra's al Ghul, I'd be like, come on, man. I think this is kind of BS that you're telling yourself here. That, that the, the end of, of Revenant felt like BS. Yeah. Because what was it? I guess he was like quoting his own wife or somebody who had said, leave justice to God or something. Some I, I think he was quoting the, the, the lone uh, Indian that he was friends that's with. Right, that's yeah. right. That's right. I like those, that scene, by the way, between the two of them. I like all the stuff with him. Yeah. It's great stuff. Um, but yeah, so he's quoting this thing. Yeah. And so he lets the guy go down kind of float down the river yeah. knowing that's the problem is that he knows that he's going to get killed yeah. that the that the indians the native americans are going to kill him and so he is effectively killing him by letting him go and that's not the same as as what happens with nicholson and morse yeah. which is like oh i get it there is something beyond my own need for vengeance yeah. there's another life you're, you seem to be a good person let's see what happens you know with yeah. our lives if he had dragged him back to the fort where he is going to yeah. face justice that's one thing or if he just lets him float down the if there are no indians there and he lets him float down the river and it's like well he's already like he's wounded uh he could die he might live i'll give him the same chance he gave me but it's not my issue anymore then that's a different thing. But like either of those, or if he just straight up killed him Mm -hmm. and regretted it, any option probably would have been better than the one they went with. Yeah. Um, Why'd they do it? What do you think? I have no idea. Is it, is it a DiCaprio thing? Do you think I can't be seen like killing a guy on screen or something? I I highly doubt that. I mean, departed, et cetera. Yeah, no, I don't think that's the case. Um, I think it just, I think, Honestly, I think this is why uh, the script was not nominated, uh, mm. because not because of this one choice, but because there are certain choices where I think Inuritu is so comfortable exploring things. But when it comes time for a conclusion, like think about Birdman, which because they dabble in magical realism, I'm more willing to be kind of okay with, not like that with an odd conclusion. I'd forgotten that I or hated an, that ending too. Or an open end. I, I, I like it. It's not what my preference, but I like it. Um, but yeah, Inuritu does not, 
for him, it seems very much to be about the journey, not the destination. It's like, mm. that's fine, but we do need to arrive somewhere. Especially when that's what the movie is. It's yeah. a journey to a very specific destination yeah. that you then never really get to. Yeah. And, and we just threw out three options that I think would have been consistent with the Hugh Glass character yeah. and his motivation and that DiCaprio could have sold. Um, but he didn't do any of those. Instead, he wanted to do this kind of... Mushy? It's, I don't know. It's, it feels like it, like I said, it's trying to have its cake and eat it to it. It wants it both ways. It wants to say like, the character is, is giving, it's like, I'm not going to be the one to kill him. About 15 feet away though, he will get his death. And now you can be comfortable in that. Like if you just let the character be okay with the idea He's essentially doing I don't know same. what's going to happen to him. He's doing the same thing that Tom Hardy did to him with the blinking. Sure. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's 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 true. Um something that we're meant to condemn in one sense yeah. and in the other it's like, "Oh, how he's free." Eh. No, not really. <laughs> yeah, and that is that is a definite mm. script issue and one that that does bother me quite a bit. And, you know, I think DiCaprio does his best to sell it. Um I do like the moments that come before that. I like when Fitzgerald says you came all this way just for your revenge, huh? Did you enjoy it, Glass? Because there ain't no way, there ain't nothing gonna bring your boy back. Mm-hmm. And there's something about the guy who killed your son saying, "Killing me is not gonna fix it." I like that they put that message in the mouth of the person who benefits most. Sure, you know, because if it was if it was like some third party, you know, the DiCaprio could be like, "Yeah, you're right," but it comes from a guy who definitely has a vested interest yeah. in. Uh, in glass not getting his revenge um but it's got to make but the true but it's still true he's got to think saying that hardy saying that will do nothing but spur uh dicaprio on even more to kill him yeah I mean, because it's a very affronting thing to say that's not a yeah. word but it is now um it's provoking him even more why it's funny that he would even say say that but you're right it is perfect that he does say that yeah i i like that choice and i yeah. like what uh what uh, Tom Hardy does with it. Um, but yeah, so I do want to briefly, so Hugh Glass does say revenge is in God's hands, not mine. Um, and I think I would have liked that more, uh, if the revenge, if the instrument of revenge was not directly in front of glass when he decides to act on this idea. Uh, I'm even okay with, you know, we, the audience see, that Tom Hardy a little bit further down the line but DiCaprio is doesn't. killed, but DiCaprio doesn't. I would have liked that more because it means a lot more to let go if you genuinely don't know when God's revenge or God's justice will, right there. will implement itself. Oh, yeah, boy. I think that, and I think it, I think it, it, it undercuts so much uh, of that moment. Yeah. Um, you know, I wouldn't say this film, it's not like it's building towards an anti-revenge message. You know, it's building towards a revenge and and survival and that kind of thing. And only in the last moment does it seem to think, oh, okay, I see. Um, and because it only adds that at the last minute, uh, I don't feel ripped off. Because like, well, they only started exploring it recently, so it's fine. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely is a, it definitely is a flaw with the movie. Um, but we are talking about, uh, revenge here and loss and not being defined by those things mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, because revenge is in God's hands, not mine. We will be quoting something that is similar to that. Um, so, um, and there is a, there is a quote from the crossing guard, uh, said by David Morris, where somebody is talking about freedom cause he just got out of 
prison. And he says, I think freedom is overrated. You know, if there isn't something bigger than freedom, then freedom is just entertainment. And I like the idea of something bigger that like to us, freedom is like the most important thing for him. Freedom is the most important thing for Nicholson. Revenge is the most important thing or grief or whatever it is. But it's like, yeah, but if it's, if there's nothing bigger than that, if there's nothing to be free for, um, if there's nothing to seek, nothing to appeal to, uh, for justice, um, then really it's, it's only ever going to be for its own sake or for your sake. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, eventually Freddie's grief in the crossing guard is, is a selfish thing. Um, it's not merely, and I think this is the nature of revenge versus justice. It's not merely this guy killed this drunk driver killed a, a little girl. It's that he killed my little girl. You know, we hear about stuff happening all the time and we think, Oh, that's a shame. You know, that guy should definitely be put in jail. But if it's ours, suddenly it's different. No, no, no. You don't do that to my daughter. And I feel like it's a, I I do think it's a natural human instinct. Um, There's a reason that revenge is such an effective uh, story in movies and books and that sort of thing. Um, And I don't know. I think because there, there definitely is a selfish instinct to like make things right, quote unquote, but what it ultimately comes down to is I need to make things right for me. I need to get my own satisfaction. I need to know that if I'm, if I've gotten hurt, you're going to get hurt too. Um, and I don't know. It's like I said, something that appeals to all of us, which is all the more reason why we need to talk about it here. So we have a number of, uh, Bible verses. We got Leviticus nineteen eighteen. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone. Bear a grudge. Wait a minute. That's our show, everybody. No. <laughs> um, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Uh, Proverbs twenty verse twenty two. Go. Do not say I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord, and He will avenge you. I now have a a long section. That Robert refused to read, Wait a so minute. I'll I didn't do it. Um, Matthew five verses thirty-eight through forty-five. You have heard it said, "Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth." But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Uh, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet your, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. So, you know, this, Be perfect. Yeah, that's pretty tough. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, this is uh, this is some pretty, this is some pretty tough stuff, um, and it's very difficult to do. Turning, I would say, if anything, the other cheek. Yeah, this this uh, illustrates the impossibility of forgiveness, basically, because as a human being, kind of, yeah. How do you how do you do any of that? But and yet we have the capacity for it. Yes, somewhere a version of this. Yes, it says be perfect. I don't think we can be perfect, even though he commands it. Right. But there's a version of that, and I think that's meted out in these movies. Or at least the second movie, the companion movie. Yeah. 
that it is possible to set aside that white hot need for vengeance yeah. when you see that that person is a person too with their own circumstances. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, when you think about it, when it comes right down to it, you've got forgive the, forgive them father for they know not what they do. Like literally forgiving somebody as they're driving a nail into your wrist or hand, depending on uh, people's interpretation. Yeah. Uh, it's one thing to forgive somebody after the fact. Yeah. During? Oof. During or maybe even before. Eesh. You know, I'd say yeah. that's certainly dur- uh, during, but like that takes a lot of work and that is acknowledging, it, like no, like they know not what they do. That is acknowledging limitation, the limitation of the person that's hurting you. In that, in this case, it's their ignorance of something. You know, in the crossing guard, it's surely this guy did not know when he got behind the wheel of that car that this was going to happen. Had he known, obviously, he never would have done it. He might stop drinking altogether. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then and it is it's a bit on the nose, but I do kind of like that at the end Nicholson at the end of Crossing Guard Nicholson gets pulled over for drunk driving and right. he's, as he's on the way to go kill the guy. He points out that <laughs> yeah. irony, which makes it even more on the nose. Yes, yes. Um, but Nicholson actually sells it. He actually finds it. I don't know. You gotta. If the character himself realizes something is on the nose, it's like, okay, you've got, the writer has given you a, a gift here. It's called hanging a lantern on it. Yes, absolutely. I love that term. Um, but yeah, so I think part of, so I was talking a moment ago about this idea of how, it's like, how could this happen as opposed to how could this happen to me? Literally anybody who something happens to could say that, you know? And so, and I'm sure most people do, but, and this seems like a, this seems like a terrible way of thinking, maybe, but it's one that I think is, is rooted in the Bible, which is what, you know, the idea of why me, as opposed to, well, why not me? What's so special about me? Yeah. You know, that God would keep me from any negative thing in my life. You know, because when you say, why me? You're also saying, why not them? Well, what did they, you know, the only difference between you and them is that they're not you. So, like, why would you want, you're kind of wishing it on someone else as long as it doesn't hit you. And, and yes, there are people that lament, you know, the, the, the state of the world and that kind of thing. But, you know, revenge is not about lamenting the state of the world. That is, it is about lamenting what happened to you. And if it had happened to anybody yeah. else, you're not getting revenge on, you know, uh, for somebody else. Like, oh, I know this, this couple whose daughter was killed by a drunk driver. I feel so bad for them. When he gets out of jail, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> it's probably not going to happen. No. It will happen because it was done to you. And I don't know. I just... Uh, there's a certain myopic quality to that. Uh, definitely, it's there's definitely a selfish quality to that, which is like, I was hurt and I'm the only one that matters. Never mind the circum, like you said, the circumstances of the person who hurt me. You know, like that's yeah. miles away for, from forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, that's you know, that's literally you're going to nail me to a cross. Don't you realize who I am? You're going straight to hell. You know. Uh, and can you imagine 
<laughs> the gospel was that. I, one could say it's not the gospel at that point. That um, would be another unexpected ending to a story. <laughs> it would. Um, okay, so Romans 12, verses 19 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, that last part always fascinates me because it sounds like do do uh, the opposite of what they want because that'll really make him uh-huh. mad. That'll get him. Um, and then it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, and I think if you look at Nicholson's character, he's a man who over the last five years has become overwhelmed, uh, overcome by evil. Yeah. You know, his marriage broke up. He started drinking, started like going to these strip clubs constantly, uh, having sex with, you know, hookers and prostitutes, and it's going to end with him murdering someone. Uh, that sounds like someone that has become overcome by evil. Yes. Um, and then, uh, so first Thessalonians five verse 15, and we urge you brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And so I understand that this is all easy to say when you've not <laughs> felt loss or when nothing has been taken from you. Um, you know, but, and if that is all we are, it's like what, uh, the character John Booth is saying, like, if we, if it's only about freedom, then, okay, I guess that's all that matters. And if it's only about freedom, then I will be as free as I want to be and do whatever I want to do. But there has to be something kind of binding. There has to be something bigger than freedom so that if freedom is taken away from you, you're, you're still you, you're still a, a person. You know, if your daughter is taken away from you, if your son is taken away from you, well, you're not only a parent, you know, your identity hasn't been taken from you. And so if you're now, obviously we're going to lean towards Jesus, um, who by the end had everything stripped of him. And I don't just mean his life. I mean, his reputation, you know, he was the king of the Jews. He was the one that was going to save everyone. And by the end, nobody, even, very few people even believed he was that. Even his own disciple denied him. You know, right. uh, one betrayed him. One doubted him. You know, I guess that was afterwards. But, um, you know, he had literally everything taken from him, ex- but not his identity. Because his identity, unsurprisingly, Christ's identity was in Christ. Um, and if we have that as well then we can lose literally everything, but we're still us and we can continue to be us, you know, uh, Nicholson's character has his identity stripped from him. And so he, he doesn't know what to do. So he winds up doing all this other stuff to distract him from the fact that his identity has been stripped from him. Um, and so what I will say, so Psalm 119 verse 92 if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And that's the first time I've ever read that verse. Hmm. And I think it is incredibly powerful. You know, everybody is going to be afflicted in some capacity. And if we had not, if we did not delight in God and God's law and the larger truth of God, then we 
we will perish in our affliction. It will become the thing that defines us if we're not careful. And so that is what I think these movies are about. Uh, you know, it's the idea of seeking revenge and, and that being who you are. And regardless of how the revenant might end, um, I think as we were talking about, if the film had continued, it could have been a tragedy. You know, it's already kind of tragic. Um, but if Fitzgerald had slipped away and gone to another state and then glass just decides, all right, I'm going to keep going. And then the movie ends, then this becomes a very sad thing. Yeah. You know, his survival at the moment is, is dedicated towards dedicated to revenge. But once he gives up on the notion of revenge, like, you know, and the movie, regardless of what you and I think about the choice he makes seemingly as a way of avoiding revenge in his heart, he's saying, this is not what I want anymore. This is not who I am and it's not my place to do it. So he's going to, and now he's, now he's alive and now he can go on with the rest of his life, whatever that might be. Now the film has done a good job of showing that living in this world is horrible, but who knows? Like he could find somebody else Mm -hmm. or, or not like, he's free to do these other things because he's let go of the one thing that for at least for a little while was driving him. Right. And yeah, so I'm going to keep, uh, keep on rambling if, if, (laughs) if I don't stop myself. So, you know, hopefully this gives you guys something to, to think about. Um, if you haven't seen the Revenant, it's weird that you'd be listening uh, for two hours and 20 minutes, uh, to 21. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, uh, then seek it out. We've spoiled everything. But you know what? This is not a film about spoilers. This is a film yeah. that is to be vis- that is visceral. And it's, it's to be experienced. Absolutely. And then The Crossing Guard, we've given all the proper warnings. Do not expect a great movie, but expect some great things within that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we will go ahead and leave it there. Feel free to comment on this uh, if you like at morethanonelesson.com. You can email me, Tyler, morethanonelesson.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at morelessons. You can also like us on Facebook. So I think that'll be it. I do not yet know what next week's episode or mini-sode will be, so I'll try to keep you guys updated on that. In the meantime, thank you all for listening. Rob, uh, Robert, thank you for being here. Absolutely. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.